Hello, everybody, and welcome to All N. My name is Spencer Mansion Seth. And I am John Romero, is about to make you his Eric. You ready to go, Seth? I have our entire travel itinerary planned. Hang on, our entire travel itinerary? That's right. I've got a whirlwind tour planned, and our very first stop will be the lovely Quebec. I mean, I don't know if we have to go to Quebec. We're, I mean, we're just going to be talking about it in this week's news roundup. And after that, we'll be visiting some ancient ruins. Ah. Man, it's crazy how much some things wind up changing over time. Yeah, they certainly do. That's why we're going to be counting down the top five games that changed the most over their development this week. Oh, and I'm really excited for this one. <clears throat> then we'll be visiting exotic India. Okay, but we're not actually going there. However, we are covering Nottinghead Studios' standout debut, Raji, an ancient epic, in our indie showcase this week. And we'll be finishing our trip in beautiful Espana. I mean, you know, I'd actually really like to go to Spain. I mean, then again, we're going pretty deep into a literal horror story of someone who traveled to Spain this week in our all-in retrospective of Resident Evil 4, so... All right, all right, buddy. Let's go. Let, oh, oh, wow, he's he's being dead serious. He's actually... Uh, all right, guys, uh, you guys enjoyed the intro. I'm going to go get him back. Uh, it's time to go all-in. All right, man, you understand that we're not you know, we're not about to board a plane, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. I actually packed for three weeks, too. Ugh. Oh, well, I'll just throw everything back in my drawers. I don't even have, I don't even think I own three weeks worth of clothes, to be honest with you. Well, three weeks of clothes to me was three sets of pants and 15 shirts, so. That's fair. That's about, that's about what I'm rocking to. But we are staying here for now. Yes. <laughs> Noah. No, uh, around the world in 80 days for us, we've got a show to do and we've got a great one lined up for you guys this week. We want to welcome new and returning listeners to All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show for each and every Saturday. No shell is left unturned and no point is left unearned. We want to thank everybody for joining us this week. Sir, what's been going on? <laughs> so I found a new show this week. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. So when... A new season of a show that I like comes to Disney Plus or Netflix or or one of those streaming services. It's not uncommon for me to sit down and within a couple days knock out an entire season, especially if there's, you know, just eight or 10 or 13 episodes or whatever. However, this week, since our last episode aired, I found and finished all of the currently available episodes for Lucifer on Netflix. Dude, I was getting like legitimately worried about you there. I, I hadn't heard from you in like two days. <laughs> yeah. So after our last episode aired, I just got onto Netflix and I had a few minutes. So I just said, you know what? I've heard a lot about this show. Let me let me try an episode. And then honestly, like three days and 75 episodes later, I was like, oh, my God, where did the last half week go? Because genuinely, genuinely for about three days there, I watched the show and slept and ate. I'd watch like eight, ten episodes and then 
sleep a little bit. I stopped for like 10, 15 minutes, grabbed myself something to eat. And I went through all five seasons that are currently available on Netflix. Again, 75 episodes in like three, three and a half days. And that's something that I've never done before. Good God, man. I, I take it it's a good show. It's certainly an addictive show. It is a very good show. I enjoyed quite a bit. The ensemble cast is is really, really good. The admittedly bonkers concept is handled with, I think, the appropriate amount of both camp and seriousness. The two lead characters do have really amazing chemistry, and that certainly helps. If you can find opposite romantic leads that have really good on-screen chemistry, then that alone can really carry an entire show. And for anybody who doesn't know what Lucifer is, Lucifer is a crime procedural fantasy where Lucifer himself, the actual literal devil, is living in Los Angeles and has found himself as a police consultant with local law enforcement uh, because his whole stick is punishing evil. He also owns a nightclub because of course he does. And he has the ability to draw people's innermost desires, which is why the police find him useful. So uh, if you've never given it a try, do give it a try. All the episodes are available on Netflix. It actually switched from, I think, Fox or NBC or something. One of the networks, they canceled it after three seasons. And then there was such this outcry, this outpouring of fan support that Netflix wound up buying up the rights to the show and Netflix produced seasons four and five and the upcoming final sixth season. So that's cool. I don't think I knew that. That's pretty cool. But yeah, it's, it's really good. Tom Ellis who plays Lucifer is annoyingly charming and (laughs) it's great. It's, uh, I really, really enjoyed the show. Uh, there's not much else for me to say other than that, because obviously after three days and 75 episodes, I think, you know, I enjoy the show does come <laughs> off as a bit of an understatement, <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've binged before, but I, I haven't done anything like that before. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I mean, I've binged before too, and, and admittedly, I'm not a huge TV guy, but yeah, that that's... That's intense, man. So after I finished that, I did finally remember that other aspects of my life existed. And I did jump back into Animal Crossing, still making some snowmen. I jumped back into Super Mario Brothers 35 because, as a matter of fact, there's an event going on right now for the next few days. I believe it ends the 25th. There's an event going on right now where you actually get 250, I believe, gold Nintendo points if you're able to beat a Bowser, if you're able to beat Bowser at all, even just one during this event in Super Mario Brothers 35. Well, and again, if you have a Nintendo account, that's just free money. So I jump back on, I'm doing that. And this is something, especially going into the last couple months of this game's availability, that's something that I would expect to see a bit more of in the coming weeks in the last couple months. Because again, for those who don't know, the game is supposed to be made unavailable March 31st. So if that's the case, they're probably going to try to make the most out of these last eight weeks or so that the game is around. So these 250 gold points that are up for grabs for relatively little work, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if that became the norm going into the last couple of weeks of this game's uh, last few weeks of this game's supposed existence. Although I do kind of hope that Nintendo rolls back on that and does leave the game there because again it is 
it's content Nintendo has, you know, why not make it available? But uh, yeah, I haven't really started any new games or experiences. I've kind of been, uh, let's just say, entranced by a certain <laughs> devil for most of the week, but I have turned on my, my Nintendo switch a couple times, at least in the last seven days. I'm glad you remembered to eat and sleep and do basic human functions. Only barely, <laughs> only barely. Yeah. Well for me this week, uh, it's been interesting. I played through the game that we're going to be talking about in our indie showcase and I'll, you mm-hmm. know, stay tuned for more on that. Uh-huh. Um, I also went ahead and played Splatfest in Splatoon 2, the uh, you know the Team Super Mushroom versus Team Superstar. A total snub, by the way, uh, <laughs> that my team lost, uh, despite having a complete dominating lead in the popular vote, as it were. Yeah, 68% <laughs> of the vote for Team Superstar. Yeah, so I guess it just came down to... You know, it's it's actually funny. This is the first time I played Splatoon 2 in, in quite some time in any real capacity. Mm-hmm. And they've added quite a few interesting little new things to it. Like, there's oh, yeah. now, for Splatfest, a, uh, like a clout meter, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. And they also have a thing where if you stick with the same team for a while the game will actually kind of assign your team like a name. And I actually played with the same group of folks on like a 12 win streak. And and we played together for a long time. And I don't remember what name it gave us, but at the beginning of every, you know, of every uh, match, it would have at the bottom of the screen, like team superstar or whatever it said, you know, and I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. And uh, yeah, Splatoon 2 is still Splatoon 2. I put in my work for team superstar and that's all I can say. Uh, it's unfortunate that we lost, but hey, it is what it is. No hard feelings. I'm looking forward to future Splatfest, presuming that we're going to get any future Splatfests. Uh, hashtag Team Super Mushroom. But <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me at all. And this is something we mentioned during our top five of things that we think Nintendo should do for Zelda's 35th anniversary. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if they revived the whole Splatfest thing yet again to have a Zelda themed Splatfest. I don't know. Uh, you could do Triforce of Courage versus Triforce of Wisdom or something. I don't know. What do you actually? That's a good question. What do you think the the Zelda Splatfest would be? Yeah, that's going to be a tricky one, right? Because you know it's only a two way battle. You know, it's a one v one kind of thing. It's two sides. So I don't know. I hadn't really considered that. It can't really be a Triforce situation. So, yeah, that's a really good question. Maybe like Hyrule versus Low Rule or something like that. Link versus Ganon? Yeah, maybe like a Link versus Ganon thing. Yeah. I don't know. That's Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I hope they do it, though. I hope they do it, too. Like you mentioned, I really like the dialogue between Pearl and Marina at the start of the Super Mario 35 Splatfest. That was really entertaining. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I also, I want to shout out real quick. Um, we mentioned a top five. I wanted to shout out a couple of things from the community, a couple of little uh, tidbits that uh, some of the members of our community had to chime in on Twitter. I want to shout out. Uh, so we we had somebody shout out Caesar and our top five uh, best, you know, goodest boys in Nintendo history. Mm-hmm. Somebody shout out Caesar from Wargroove. Very nice. Uh, Should have been on the list. I respect that. I respect it too. And then uh, actually Andros from the Nintendo Pals, he said that even though we scratched out Wolf Link, 
we we forgot to mention his supporting role in Breath of the Wild, where he actually was a companion with the use of the amiibo. So I was like, you know what? Fair point. Fair point, Andros. I'll give you that. <laughs> Admittedly, I still so. don't think that would have been top five worthy, but that is right. a really cool amiibo functionality for Breath of the Wild. If you have the Wolf Link amiibo, you can actually have Wolf Link accompany you in battle. So I wanted to shout that out. Some folks from our community, um, you know, shouting out on Twitter. Definitely, you know, we always invite you guys to to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and chime in uh, when, you know, as you guys are listening to the show. So definitely wanted to shout that out. Last thing that I'll kind of talk about here is Immortals Phoenix Rising. Ah, yes. Game that I decided to pull the trigger on. I've been kind of eyeballing it for a while. Uh, the game has consistently since its launch, you know, last fall, it's been consistently going on sale. I mean, the game's been out for like not even two months at this point, I think. And it's already gone down to $30 pretty consistently. I, I don't know if that's just indicative of, of like a soft sales, you know, perspective or something. But in any case, I actually just popped my gold points on it and I got the game for free. Nice. Um, Yeah. So I've been playing quite a bit of it. I've put in about eight hours into it this week. And I'm having a good time with it. It's actually quite fun. It's a total Breath of the Wild clone. You know, it is it is exactly what it is. It is very cheesy. Like, <laughs> so cheesy. Like, to the point where, you know, there's sometimes when I'm like, okay, I see what you're going for. It's this fun Saturday morning cartoon kind of thing. But sometimes it's like a little too much. Where I'm like, all right, man, like I, I got to mute you for a little while and just like, you know, cleanse my palate of all of the cheese that you just threw at me. But, uh, you know, it's fun, though. It's it's a solid kind of like seven out of ten experience. It's just a fun open world Ubisoft game. I actually kind of forgot like how much I miss that kind of typical Ubisoft clearing the map, checking boxes kind of experience. It's been a while since I've played a game like that. So. Yeah, it's it's basically just Ubisoft's take on Breath of the Wild in, you know, set in Greek mythology with a layer of Saturday morning cartoon cheese. That's basically what Immortals Phoenix Rising is. Horrible title, by the way. <laughs> I wish wish they had just stuck with Gods and Monsters, but it is what it is. Um, but yeah, for 30 bucks, I I think it's a really easy recommend. I'm I'm having a lot of fun with it. One of the really interesting things about Immortals Phoenix Rising is the fact that this past week, as a matter of fact, they announced a partnership, or not necessarily a partnership, but a cross-promotion with the Netflix animated series, The Blood of Zeus. So, Right. So if you do own the game, there's going to be a limited time DLC event going on where you can get some items or armor equipment uh, inspired by this new Netflix animated series called the blood of Zeus, which itself clearly is also based on Greek mythology. It's weird though, because you know, mortals Phoenix rising doesn't really posit itself as this super mature game. However, no. Yeah. Yeah. Blood of Zeus is a pretty mature show. So it's kind of weird. It's like being able to, it's like being able to unlock game of Thrones equipment. (laughs) Right. In in immortals Phoenix rising or something. It's, it, this is just, despite the fact that there's connective tissue with the Greek mythology, it is still kind of weird because they are for vastly different demographics. 
Yeah, they have like a kind of microtransaction thing in there where you can get some aesthetic stuff. Um, they actually have like an Adventure Time collaboration where you can get some Adventure Time gear, which is kind of funny. That's cool. It's not in your face. You don't have to engage in it at all. It's kind of par for the course for modern Ubisoft games where, yeah, it's there. Like you can dig through the menus and find it, but you can very capably and very you know feasibly play through the entire game without ever tapping into it. And uh, it's not constantly trying to sell you stuff. It's very, it's tactfully handled, but it's in there if you would like to spend some money. Um, yeah, it's it's just a fun game. Like, I, I just like it. It's got its own little take on the Breath of the Wild shrines. It's got the climb anywhere, stamina-based, you know, Breath of the Wild thing. It's just, you know, the combat's really fast and fluid. And I don't know, it doesn't necessarily do any one thing better than the games that it takes inspiration from, but it's just a solid representation of all of those ideas. And I think that's totally fine. I mean, frankly, it's surprising that we don't have more Breath of the Wild clones. So I'm, I'm happy to play one every so often. Yeah, obviously Ubisoft has a ton of experience making open world collectible based games like that, considering that's essentially what Assassin's Creed is. So it looks like they're essentially just kind of finding some middle ground between that and Breath of the Wild. But, you know, I'm always up for a, you know, not every game we play has to be amazing. And I'm always up for just a a cheesy kind of not even turn your brain off, but, you know, an enjoyable at least romp around an open world collecting stuff and checking boxes. Yeah, and that and that's totally what this is. And it seems like well, there is some kind of corroborating evidence that there may be a demo uh, coming together for this game. We yeah. saw, I think it was on the the Steam database. Somebody saw an Immortals demo pop up on there. Not officially confirmed yet, but if that does pop up on the Switch eShop, we will definitely let you guys know. And in that case, I would certainly recommend giving the game a whirl. But again, you know, see it on sale. If you got 30 bucks and some time laying around, I mean, look, there are way worse games to play. I'm, I'm just having a good time with it. But um, man, that's pretty much all that's been going on with me this week. We have got some news to cover. So what do you say we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. There are a couple pretty interesting things going on in the world of the Nintendo. Hey, listen. So in our first news story this week, a world record that was recently broken has been broken yet again. Following the rising trend of Pokemon cards really coming back into popularity, coming back into the cultural zeitgeist, and becoming incredibly expensive, incredibly popular collector's items, a Blastoise card from the original set has now sold at auction for $360,000, which sets a new record for actual cash paid for a single Pokemon card. Wow. You know, it's weird. Whenever you see a story like this, you just kind of expect it to be like a Charizard card because that's just always the go-to when it comes to uh, incredibly expensive Pokemon cards. People always just automatically think of that base set first edition foil Charizard, which has set the record multiple times previously in this regard. However, what makes this Blastoise card so special is the fact that it was one of two Blastoise cards presented to Nintendo just to get the English translation approved. The thing that makes this Blastoise card so special is the fact that it was one of two Blastoise cards that were part of a set that was printed specifically to get approval for the English translation of the original set. 
So when it comes to this card specifically, there are only two in existence because the design, and there's a couple things about the card that isn't quite base set. There are a couple differences from the actual official release cards. So right. uh, that drove, obviously that drove the value up quite a bit here at auction. And it is really cool. Apparently the uh, whereabouts of the other card, the other Blastoise card, are unknown, but at least we have this one lying around. And as far as stuff like this goes, that's really cool that they're able to find one of these. If it were something like, you know, a Charmander or something, it wouldn't be nearly as cool. But the fact that it's this, it's super rare, but it's also done from an already rare Pokemon card. I just think this is a really cool story. Yeah, it is. And Blastoise already the second most valuable card in the base set just under Charizard. So yeah, I mean, and people are go after these error packs or kind of edge cases all the time. You see cards that have like, you know, the weight printed twice or, you know, there's the, uh, the gray foil stamps and stuff like that, that are, you know, that are famous and those kind of go up in price. And it's, it's just like with any collectible item, right? It's, that, that kind of thing just gives it even more value. And the fact that only two of these exist, frankly, I'm surprised it didn't go for more. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, that's a huge amount of money for a Pokemon card. See, that's the thing. Whenever I see something like this, I just immediately think that's $360,000. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, and the Pokemon card market, and we've talked about this a few times on the show, it, it's as popular now as it's ever been. And it's actually only raising in popularity and with stuff like the 25th anniversary uh, coming up. um, I mean, it's just, it's only growing and we're going to see more stories like this. I mean, it's just going to be the kind of thing where, you know, new records are going to be set constantly because the value of these cards is going to do nothing but rise. Yeah. That's exactly what I was just about to say. Would not surprise me at all. If every month, the record was broken at this point. Yeah, absolutely. But the next story we've got here, we have got to just pay tribute and salute yes. a Nintendo veteran, uh, Takaya Imamura, who is the man behind uh, some of the designs of the legendary kind of Nintendo stable of characters, the cast of Star Fox, F-Zero characters, Tingle, my boy Tingle, um, as well as some other Majora's Mask characters, spent 32 years at Nintendo and retired this week. Um, again, just wanted to uh, shout out and salute Mr. Imamura. See, that's how clickbaity so much of the internet has become is all the stories and all the outlets that have been reporting on this over the past few days. 90% of them are Tingle creator leaves Nintendo. Like no regard. I mean, Tingle is a big deal. <laughs> no, no regard for the fact this is the guy that designed Fox McCloud and Falco and Captain Falcon. No, the guy who designed Tingle is leaving Nintendo. That's how trolly and how clickbaity the internet has gotten. I mean, I, I love Tingle, but Tingle is probably the least iconic character he designed. Exactly. Well, the least, I the the least unironically iconic character. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yes, Mister Imamura took a selfie right outside of his office in Kyoto, posted it to social media, saying that that was the last time he was leaving his office. 
And again, 32 years with Nintendo, joined back in 1989, began his career working on games like Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. So uh, again, we salute you, sir. Thank you for everything that you have done. And it's kind of weird because this feels like, I don't want to say the beginning of the end. You realize that all of the old guard, a lot of the people who've been with Nintendo for that long, people like Shigeru Miyamoto, people like, you know, Mr. Imamura, they're probably all going to be exiting the company soon. So a lot of the people who were responsible for most of our childhoods probably within the next five, 10 years are no longer going to be with the company. It's going to be a completely new team. Obviously there's turnover at every company, but you know, we're, we're really coming to that time. Reggie left, Mr. Imamura left, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't his choice, but we also did lose a Wadasan and it wouldn't surprise me if it, it honestly wouldn't surprise me if, if Shigeru Miyamoto was thinking about hanging up his Mario cap here soon as well. So, you know, sad times, sad times. Yeah. I mean, the, the man is, you know, Miyamoto in particular is almost 70 years old. So, I mean, these, these guys are getting older. Uh, the, you know, these games have been around for a long time. These franchises that they helped develop and create have been around for a long time and they have to move on. And I think the important thing is that the people who are picking up the torch are, you know, capable of doing so. And I think we've seen a lot of evidence of that um, kind of in recent years. There is a lot of fresh blood at Nintendo. And uh, yeah, it's it's sad to see them go. But I, but I think they're leaving these games in capable hands. I do too. I do too. Nintendo is still producing consistently excellent titles and they were raised right. Essentially <laughs> they were brought up, you know, Miyamoto isn't just Mario and Luigi's dad. I'm sure he's a father figure to many, many employees and creators at Nintendo. And I know that just like Reggie left Nintendo of America in the seemingly very capable hands of Doug Bowser. I'm sure that, you know, Nintendo's home office in Japan is going to similarly be left in very capable hands. It, it, you know, and I, I said this to you before, probably just in casual conversation. I don't think I've said this on the show, but when I played Super Mario Odyssey and the credits roll, and this is not a spoiler, the credits of Super Mario Odyssey it, that game is probably representative of the most elegant passing of the torch I've ever seen because the credits of that game is just strictly alphabetical. It is not Shigeru Miyamoto is just in there with the rest of the other M last names. And that read to me when I saw that it actually made me a little emotional because it almost read to me as if it was like a, Hey, you know, we're all equal and you know what? We got this. Like, don't worry we can handle it. And Super Mario Odyssey is is one of the best 3D Mario games for my money. And, you know, for a lot of new blood in Nintendo to be making waves like that with a game like that, I, I think is an excellent show of faith. So don't worry, folks. We, we you know, we're sad to see these, these veteran, you know, players leave, um, but we respect and salute their careers like Mr. Imamura and uh, thank them for their contribution, but they leave in the knowledge that, you know, the games are still very, very good. Indeed. I just hope that Nintendo's legal department gets left in good hands because honestly, mm. they, they still need it, apparently. Uh, this is what we were talking about earlier when we said we were going to travel up to Quebec. A new, yet another, 
class action lawsuit has been filed against Nintendo because of the Joy-Con drift. This one by the law firm LaBert Avocat, I believe is how it's pronounced, but they have brought, again, yet another class action lawsuit against Nintendo for Joy-Con drift, citing the fact that Nintendo has not been open to consumers or has not been open with consumers about the drift issue with the Joy-Cons. And this is just a trend that we've seen. There was that massive, massive class action lawsuit that Nintendo's been dealing with for a while, and these little ones have just kept popping up. So uh, until Nintendo, and this is kind of the biggest controversy that they've really had to deal with over the past few years, and it all stems from the fact that they they just still won't address it head on. They still won't put labels on the Joy-Con boxes. They still haven't come out and and posted communications on their website and stuff like that. They still it's it's almost as like they're still just trying to brush it under the rug or something, which is weird because at this point the entire world knows about it. So yeah, as much as we love the company, guys, just just put some labels on some boxes or something unless you guys just enjoy paying out million dollar settlements to all these lawsuits i I can't imagine putting labels on your boxes would cost more than that yeah i I wondered where this is all going to end up falling once these lawsuits are settled and whatever happens ends up happening because you know nintendo and we had a full discussion on this all the kind of nintendo controversies months ago on the show we we've talked about you know we've covered many many joy con drift Joy-Con lawsuit related stories um, over the run of this show. I mean, so I won't belabor the point too much, but the, you know, the fact remains that this is a problem. This has been a consistent problem since the launch of the switch. And this is something that Nintendo is going to have to deal with. They can't keep sweeping it under the rug. This is something that is going to have to be addressed. And you're just going to see more and more of these lawsuits crop up until it is. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing. It's not even necessarily about the Joy-Con drift itself anymore. There's a big pattern emerging with a lot of these new lawsuits. And the major reason they're citing grievances is because of Nintendo's lack of communication. So again, it isn't even necessarily as much about the issue as about the fact that Nintendo, for some reason, still just won't get ahead of this thing. And yeah, because there's such a definite pattern emerging with that one thing specifically being cited all the time now, I I wonder if this is finally going to be the one that pushes Nintendo to say, all right, you know, we're tired of, of paying out settlements. Let's just finally put the sticker on the box and be done with it until we find out how to make better Joy-Cons. We'll see where it goes. But one company that is uh, not having to worry about money at all right now is Limited nope. Run. Nope. <laughs> Because, man, this is something that I've said kind of ad nauseum when it relates to Scott Pilgrim and Limited Run. Even back when we talked to Doug from Limited Run months and months ago on the show, I was just like, man, if they get a hold of Scott Pilgrim, this will be the biggest deal that they will ever make. And uh, yeah, turns out that's correct. That's absolutely correct. They, uh, Doug and Josh from Limited Run tweeted out that within three hours of the physical version of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the game complete edition going on sale uh, instantly became their biggest release ever. So huge congrats to those guys. Limited run typically holds four week or even six week open pre-orders for their products. So just think about that. You have, they've been around for five years now and they have done dozens. I think possibly even uh, around a hundred different switch titles over now. Yeah. yeah. 
and PlayStation 4 titles and PlayStation Vita titles and all of these different games that they've been able to produce, again, holding month-long or even six-week-long open pre-orders for. And simply three hours after Scott Pilgrim went live, it became their most successful release to date within three hours. And this is something I tweeted about on my personal account, but I would love, I would love to see the final numbers when they close the pre-orders at the end of February, because that is going to be a record that might not be broken for a while from limited run. Yeah, I know Doug tweeted out just in that first weekend on the Switch alone, it sold over 45,000 copies. And and we don't even know how that breaks down in terms of the dollar amount because I have to imagine not an inconsiderable amount of those sales are for the, you know, the big KO edition. So uh, just all the money, all the money. And this is, you know, it was obvious that this was going to happen the instant they got a hold of that deal because, again, this has been such a kind of holy grail item for so many, you know, hardcore gamers and fans of Scott Pilgrim. So, yeah, I mean, this just made perfect sense and I'm just thrilled that it exists. I'm thrilled that the game is back and I am thrilled for our friends at Limited Run. I am too. I just hope they wind up hiring a full team of people to make sure that these all get shipped out because by the time the pre-orders are closed, man, if they don't hire like an extra 100 people just to ship these things out, people are going to be waiting on these things through the end of like 2023. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be quite a lot of lead time regardless. And then, you know, COVID's not going to make things any easier. Of course. But, you know, but then like they also knew exactly what they had going on here because it's not just the game. It is a full merchandise blowout on limitedrungames.com. Like they, they have got shirts and pins and switch cases and everything under the sun and that automata gucci soundtrack yeah the soundtrack released on vinyl with like 10 unreleased tracks i mean it's like uh they should be like held uh responsible for extortion against me personally (laughs) Uh, i feel personally attacked (laughs) but you and i both absolutely had to get that ko edition that had to happen it it just had to happen i i couldn't buy it fast enough but man uh (laughs) In another kind of news story in which I feel personally attacked, (laughs) um, (laughs) the reveal of a new wave of Lego Cross Super Mario sets, the Tanuki suit, the Penguin suit, the Master Your Adventure Maker set, which they're going to make me buy if I want to get a hold of a Koopa Paratroopa or a Larry Koopa minifig. They're monsters. They're monsters over (laughs) there at the Lego company. (laughs) Lego always does this. They always, it's it's like, it's like games hiding content that's already on the disc behind a paywall. They'll release entire sets just adding in little figures that they know people want. But again, they'll sell the entire set around this little 99 cent figure. You'll have to spend $50 on this full set just to get this minifig you want. And that's exactly what this is. I mean, granted, I, I will say it is nice that they have finally added like an expandable a, a you know a bunch of like base sets like pieces and bricks that will allow you to further expand upon the levels that you make because admittedly the initial starter kit didn't come with all that much and yes there have been several expansions released but to have more like kind of basic building blocks is is really nice so that that's kind of what this set will provide and i'm sure i'm going to wind up picking it up eventually 
And just a sort of an addendum to the Lego news, just a kind of a a, a double punch there. Um, we have got a Metroid set that is currently up on Lego Ideas. For those that don't know, it's basically a pitch site where fans can formulate, you know, Lego pitches that people can vote on. And if it reaches 10,000 votes, it will be reviewed by the Lego company for a, an official release under the Lego Ideas banner. And there is a Metroid set that includes like Samus and her ship and Ridley and all kinds of stuff. It's a pretty neat little set that uh, I believe has already met its 10,000 vote goal or as close to it um, for review. I don't know if they're going to approve this. Almost certainly not because this is going to be something they'll have to work with uh, Nintendo on. But hey, they already have a pre-existing relationship. And who knows? This might go somewhere. I don't know. We'll see. The Mario Lego set seem to have done relatively well. And they have a really cool gimmick with Mario's little smart device that's hidden within his minifigure that actually reacts to the different blocks that you put them around. So if they do something similar with Samus, could wind up being pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I'll put a link to it in the episode description so that folks can check it out. You can you know vote on there if you'd like to take a look at some of the pictures. It's pretty neat. I, I always like seeing what people are able to do, kit bashing Lego stuff. And I mean, hey, if this comes on to somebody, you know, somebody's desk at the Lego company for review, I think that's pretty cool. Well, it looks for all intents and purposes like we might be getting that Metroid Lego set. However, something I can guarantee you that we're not getting. Hmm is anything Resident Evil in the foreseeable future. Resident Evil is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, and they held a, a broadcast, an event, a showcase to celebrate that. And at this showcase, they showed off some gameplay for RE8, and they showed off a brand new multiplayer game called Reverse, and they showed off a few things. The biggest takeaway for us from this entire showcase, this entire presentation, is that nothing that was shown off is coming to the Nintendo Switch. And much like the Ubisoft forwards we covered from last year, I just think it's really, really weird just because of how incredibly successful the Nintendo Switch has been. And especially because of how much Nintendo is getting into the cloud streaming game service model. Obviously, Hitman 3 was released just earlier this week in a cloud version on the Nintendo Switch and we already know that RE8 is going to be coming to both the Xbox One and PlayStation 4. So I do kind of find it weird that there wasn't a Nintendo Switch logo anywhere in this presentation on anything. They showed off the, they, again, they showed off gameplay for RE8. They showed off a new multiplayer experience called Reverse, And they showed off some content for The Division 2. And none of that is coming to the Nintendo Switch. It's not like Resident Evil or Capcom is a stranger to Nintendo. There have been a ton of Capcom games released on Nintendo platforms. There have been quite a few classic games uh, from the Resident Evil franchise released on Nintendo platforms. We may be doing a retrospective on one of them in a little while. Mm -hmm. But nothing in 2021, apparently. It's, and again, that's just really, really weird to me. Yeah, I thought for sure coming into this that they were going to wind up announcing that Resident Evil 7 and 8 were both going to be available to stream on the Switch. And the reason I thought that is because RE7 is available for cloud streaming in Japan and has been for like two years now. It just never made its way stateside. And now that 
Nintendo has sort of put a lot of eggs in this basket. Uh, as you pointed to, Hitman is available via cloud streaming on Switch. They did the same thing with Control. Nintendo is mm-hmm. clearly putting a major focus on this. I thought for sure that that was going to be an announcement during this event, that RE7, RE8 would be available to be cloud streamed onto the Nintendo Switch. But yeah, no such announcement. Uh, it seems like Resident Evil is kind of passing up the Switch in 2021 we'll see what the rest of the year has to offer maybe if there's enough of an outcry something will happen again like you just mentioned the fact that re7 is available to stream in japan obviously they already have that technology they already have that partnership with capcom in japan so again that just makes this even more weird the fact that we're still not getting it here in america where the biohazard franchise the resident evil franchise is arguably even more popular you know again resident evil is a big deal here and the re8 is going to be a big deal here it just seems really weird that we have the technology you know we can do this we can make it work (laughs) and uh and it just it just seems like a big missed opportunity and it just seems like and, and we you know you made the ubisoft comparison we've said this ad nauseum on the show it's like hey uh knock knock like, did, did you forget that a Nintendo Switch is over here and is quite successful and can make you a lot of money? Yeah, you're passing up 65 million potential customers. If not more at this point. We won't know until the end of February when we get that uh, those quarterly reports, but it's probably even more than that at this point. I, I mean, I just, that's a lot of money to be left on the table, man. Indeed. Now, one company that we know is not trying to leave money on the table, something we know we're going to be getting very soon on the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. THQ Nordic announced earlier this week that the remaster of Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, horribly named Kingdoms of Amalur Re-Reckoning, is coming to the Nintendo Switch on March 16th. I'm so excited about this, guys, because Kingdoms of Amalur is an excellent, excellent Western RPG that a lot of people slept on back when it originally came out on the Xbox 360 and uh, I loved this game back in the day, and I've been kind of waiting to see. I admittedly didn't think they were going to do it because, you know, last year they ported it to Xbox One and PS4 and PC and just, you know, kind of had the Switch on the on the no-fly list. And now they just kind of randomly announced that it's coming after all. And I'm ecstatic. I, I can't wait to replay this game on the Switch, on the go. It's an excellent game. Uh, one of my very favorite Western RPGs, and and I hope everybody gives it a shot. Yeah, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning was a game that kind of got lost in the shuffle when it came to fantasy action RPGs. If it wasn't Elder Scrolls, if it wasn't Dragon Age, then it just kind of seemed like a B-plus player to most people, and it wasn't super heavily marketed. But for anybody who played it, I didn't see a single person who played this game that didn't absolutely adore it. So very happy to see this finding new life again on the Switch. Uh, again, we probably, it's it's almost a, a law now that we have to mention at least once per episode how much of a port machine the Switch is. But, you know, if it's given life to, to games and properties that really should have caught on in the first place, then I'm all for it. And I'm absolutely all for, again, t- t- terrible name aside, I am absolutely all <laughs> for Kingdoms of Amalur coming to hopefully a brand new generation, a brand new audience. Yeah. I Well, and so if you, if you don't know already about Amalur, um, I'll just basically, I'll just, I'll give you just the, the really quick 
uh, pitch of names of people who are involved in this game because it was an all-star kind of team behind this game designed by Ken Ralston, who uh, is one of the lead designers famously on games like Morrowind and Oblivion artist uh, Todd McFarlane uh, behind the art for the game, who is an, a legendary artist in the world of comics. R.A. Salvatore, who is a mm-hmm. you know legendary Dungeons & Dragons uh, writer. I mean, Grant Kirkhope composing the music. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, this is an all-star cast of people that, uh, you know, a, a great team that was behind this and really only failed due to kind of bad marketing and also mismanagement. Um, I won't get into it. It has an actually really interesting development cycle. Maybe we'll do a retrospective on it someday and, and cover that. But perhaps, um, yeah. But but I mean, it, 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 again, TLDR is a very good game, and when it comes out in March, play it. But we did just really quickly as we're getting to the end of our news roundup, a couple of little slip ups uh, from EA. Speaking of EA, mm-hmm. um, this was kind of interesting. So, Plants vs Zombies: Battle for Neighborville, which we have kind of had leaked backwards and forwards that this was going to come to the switch eventually was listed on Gamefly earlier this week with a March 19th release date. So it kind of seems like that game is imminent. And in that very same vein, the Japanese Twitter account for apex legends kind of let it slip that on February 2nd, when the new season of apex comes out, they did directly reference the Nintendo switch version of the game launching on the same day that tweet has now been deleted and it's unclear if that was like just a mistake or if that was something that somebody let slip ahead of an official announcement but uh it seems really likely that on march 19th we're going to get pvz battle for neighborville and on february 2nd we may very well be finally getting apex legends on the switch it is shaping up to be a monstrous february for nintendo here in 2021 it really is. Apex is going to be a huge deal on the Switch. Uh, they were originally going to put it out last fall, uh, wound up delaying it to first quarter 2021 because they need a little more time to optimize. But so, I mean, February 2nd would certainly fall right in line with that. It would be the start of a brand new season for the game. I mean, it seems like a, like a perfect uh, situation to me. Well, it seems like every week we're talking about a new demo that's becoming available on the Nintendo eShop. We've talked about Monster Hunter Rise. We've talked about Little Nightmares 2. And now we can confirm that a demo for Balan Wonderworld, that gorgeous 3D platformer shown off a couple months ago from Square, uh, is also getting a demo soon on the Nintendo eShop. And I, I absolutely want the full game. I cannot wait to play the full game. But I will certainly take a demo in the meantime. And if you're interested in playing the game, if you're interested in checking this out, which we think you should be, definitely stay tuned for that demo dropping on the Nintendo eShop soon. I cannot wait to play this demo, man. I am so hyped for this game. It's coming out the same day as Monster Hunter Rise, which is like, oh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I can't wait to play it. I'm super hyped. It's one of my most anticipated games of the spring for sure. And uh, yeah, bring it on. Like you said, I'll take a demo. You know, it's so weird. We've talked about the release schedule for 2021 because of everything that's been pushed to 2021 because of COVID. And man, there's just the more I think about it, the more frothing at the mouth I get just considering all the amazing games that are going to be releasing almost constantly for the next 12 months. It's going to be an insane year, and we just already, just in the next couple of months, have got a, a, a massive amount of content to look forward to on Switch. 
But are you excited to play the demo for Battleland Wonderworld? Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the news stories we've talked about in this episode? Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at All In Podcast and let us know. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. For everybody listening on Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us each and every week, making this part of your weekly rotation. Do please like and subscribe to All In and Nintendo Podcast if you haven't already. We love each and every one of our listeners. Again, thank you so much for hanging out. However, Seth, there was a game that released last year, the day before my birthday, as a matter of fact. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was shown off in that stunning Indie World Showcase, and we have frankly been waiting for the right time to talk about it, and we feel that this week is finally the right time. We are extremely happy to be bringing to our Indie Showcase this week, the Indian fable, Raji, an ancient epic. Now I've got to admit, guys, this one was my bad. I, I, I bought this game when it first came out. I know you played it basically immediately. Yeah, I played it, it the day out. it came out. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have been, you know, I got wrapped up in other stuff. I've been meaning to play this game and I've been looking forward to playing this game. Well, this week I finally did it. Had some free time this weekend. I played through the entire thing in two sittings. Came away really impressed, actually. And, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. So Raji, an ancient epic, is a an Indian... 3D action combat puzzle game. Uh, it's basically like the love child of Devil May Cry and Prince of Persia, effectively. And especially considering this is Nodding Head Studios' very first game, that's a pretty ambitious type of game to be making. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I think that's a really good touchstone. And, and if you think of those old Prince of Persia games, like not the kind of like behind the, you know, not the kind of more traditional 3D Prince of Persia games, the kind of like overhead view, you know, combat platforming kind of style. That's really what this game is. And there are actually some some things in this game that are very significant, almost overt Prince of Persia references. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. That's clearly where Nodding Head's got a lot of inspiration from. It's also got a little bit of that like kind of, you know, old PS2 God of War feel, it definitely scratches a certain nostalgic itch for me. Yeah. Yeah. This game, we, I really, really like this game. It's not going to stand shoulder to shoulder with games like the new God of War or Devil May Cry 5. However, it is very reminiscent, like you said, of that, those PlayStation 2 era games like this, and even something like Heavenly Sword on the PS3. This game is very, very much like that. But yeah, so it's it's really interesting because this is an original tale that is, you know, heavily rooted in, you know, in Hindu mythology. Mm -hmm. But I actually was kind of I, I actually thought after playing through the game that this was like an interpretation of an existing tale. But no, they actually made like their own kind of fable with this game's story. And I thought that was really impressive. Yeah, the way the story, the way the narrative is presented, it is very fable-like. You can definitely be forgiven for thinking that this was an adaptation of a, a more legacy, a more mythological type story because of how all the characters are presented in these very mythologically archetypal roles. But I say that to the game's credit. I really enjoy that, that mythological, that fable-like feeling 
this game has and that the characters have. The characters, again, can kind of come off as archetypal, but uh, it, it does have that ancient epic feel to it. Now, that being said, uh, again, like you said, it's very, very rooted in Hindu mythology. And throughout the course of this game, you will become hopefully a little bit more familiar with a lot of the figures in the Hindu pantheon. And just in terms of Indian culture, at least, Seth, you and I, we we definitely have to mention that one of the biggest uh, things we like about this game is simply the fact that Indian and Hindu culture is criminally underrepresented in basically most forms of media. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that was definitely my favorite part about this game was just learning about the culture and learning about some of these stories and, and some of these myths. And like, yeah, it, there are many, many cultures that are criminally underrepresented in media. Um, and Indian culture is just just one of them. And it's it's funny because playing this, the only real touchstone that I had for this stuff in the video game space was weirdly enough, Uncharted The Lost Legacy on PS4. Mm-hmm. Um, the character of Chloe in that game is of Indian descent. And so I was kind of picking up on some of the things that I was able to learn just by osmosis playing that game that were, you know, then kind of expounded upon um, in this one. So that was kind of nice, but that was honestly the only other example of Indian representation in a video game that I can think of in a significant way. There have been some like overwatch characters and stuff like this that have characters of Indian descent, but to really get this kind of a look at this different culture and to really get an intimate kind of deliberate, I guess, explanation and to get a kind of teaching moment like this. I mean, there are moments in this game where there are these murals that you can examine where, I mean, it's, it's straight up storytelling. It is straight up story time, you know, and and I loved that. Yeah. One of the really cool and interesting things about this game is the fact that there's a lot of characters, a lot of video game characters that are kind of given a companion of sorts. Like Master Chief has Cortana in Okami, you have Isun, and they allow the characters to play off each other. There creates a character dynamic there. And in Raji, while the titular character is running about adventuring, her actions and her story is actually narrated by two Hindu deities, Vishnu and Durga. And uh, Vishnu specifically, uh, just like Seth said, occasionally you'll kind of stop the game. You'll come to a certain part in the game where you'll find all these murals, which will tell a story. And Vishnu will actually narrate that entire fable. So you'll, you'll have access to, you'll actually have exposure to you know, close to a dozen different Hindu stories and Hindu fables throughout the course of this game really helps break up the gameplay. One of the many things that help really break up the gameplay helps with the pacing of the game, but it's also incredibly interesting, not just because the stories themselves are interesting, but because specifically the voice actor they got to play Vishnu is a very, very good storyteller. Reminds me a lot of John Hurt's the storyteller, that old Jim Henson's The Storyteller yeah. series from the 90s. It kind of reminds yeah. me of that in a lot of ways. Just, again, Hindu version of that. And they're incredibly well presented. They There's not a lot of animation when it comes to those aspects of the game. But just the way the stories are presented, it's, it's really, really engaging. 
And the way that the game's story in general is presented is really cool too, because like a lot of kind of traditional fables, the base setup of the game is is very simple. It's very much just like the titular character Raji and her brother Golu are like circus performers. Golu gets taken by demons and Raji wants to get them, you know, get Golu back with the help of of these two gods and deities behind her. And that is kind of the basic premise. There is kind of more to it. It gets a little bit more involved than that. But the way that this game is told in through its cutscenes is kind of through these like like shadow box like paintings, like almost 2D paper craft. Like yeah. It's it's really interesting, like really traditional. Yeah, it very much reminds me of the oldest known feature length animated film, which is The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which has these yeah. very similar paper craft, paper puppet, shadow paper puppet things. And I'm not really sure what they're called, but it's this incredibly distinct visual style. Again, very distinct. It's it's something you won't see anywhere else really aside from this game and the adventures of Prince Ahmed anywhere in America. But, uh, and it's ironic because it is so visually striking. Originally they did want to go with, uh, cutscenes that were animated using the in-game engine, but that was too much work and it was too expensive. So this was, as a matter of fact, a, a, a kind of budgetary, you know, middle ground for them. And it works really, really well. I actually think I prefer this to what they were initially planning. Yeah, I was going to say, that is a perfect example of sometimes, especially in independent development, where either budgetary or technological concessions have to be made. And oftentimes you end up going with the thing that winds up being the better final product. And yeah, I completely agree. I think I much prefer this to a traditional animated cutscene in the game's engine. The game itself looks good. The art direction is good and stuff, but there is something that's just really striking about the game's cutscenes that I think really kind of lends to the just the style of it and the different culture. But the in-game presentation, again, like I said, isn't bad either. It is a very pretty game to look at. A lot of the architectural inspiration, a lot of the character designs obviously are also taken from Indian and Hindu uh, sources. So, uh, again, it looks kind of like an early PS3 AAA title would, but sure. I, again, I don't say that to the game's detriment because the visual style is handled very well. Uh, Raji in Ancient Epic is done, as a matter of fact, in Unreal Engine 4. It is working off the Unreal Engine, and they're able to use that pretty well when it comes to the, the environments and visually representing the world. So, uh I mean, when it comes to the the cutscenes, when it comes to the story time, when it comes to the actual in-game models and environments, uh, I think, again, especially for a first game, again, just really, really impressive work here. Yeah, well, and so what I think is interesting, too, about the game is, you know, we've kind of briefly touched on the, the gameplay being reminiscent of old games like Prince of Persia, God of War, Devil May Cry. But yeah, the, the gameplay really does kind of revolve around combat, light puzzle solving, which happens from time to time, and platforming. When it comes to the combat, I think it's it's interesting, right? And, and I think a lot of my little tiny complaints of this game can basically be chalked up to, well, it was their first game, you know? Like, 
it's it's basically like things that I would like to see tightened up just a little bit yeah. in the second game. But I still, you know, hopefully they make a, a sequel. But um, but I still feel like the combat was totally serviceable and, and did some pretty interesting things. It did. It's not going to be super complex. You don't have a billion different combos that you can perform. And honestly, I think I prefer that because there are a lot of action games that give you just so many options that you wind up just saying, you know what, I'm just going to stick with like this one weapon and these three combos that I know. Because again, games like the new Devil May Cry, again, games like the new God of War, they give you so many different layers to the combat system that, you, you know, again, you just kind of have to simplify it for yourself in your mind and you wind up not using most of what you're given access to anyway, as opposed to a game like Raji, there are a few wrinkles that they throw in. You do have three different weapons. Uh, you wind up getting a fourth toward the end of the game, but for the vast majority of the time... It's at the very end, yeah, though. Yeah. But for the vast majority of the game, you'll have access to three different types of weapons that are very, very different. They each play very differently. You have a normal attack combo. You have a heavy attack combo. You have a special attack with each weapon. And then you have a couple different unique attacks like wall bounce attacks or pole bounce attacks and then right. a super attack. So each weapon gives you enough options for you to use them effectively. They give you as many attacks as you essentially need. And ultimately I think that that works better than a lot of the newer games that try to give you like 17 different weapons and a billion different abilities and combos with each one for any of the the combat scenarios that you'll come across in Raji the weapons that you'll have access to should be more than sufficient. And you'll have plenty of opportunities to use each of that weapon's different abilities. You can still use whichever one you feel most comfortable with. I really like the bow. You wind up getting a, a spear, a bow, and a sword and shield. And uh, again, I think that those would appeal to the vast majority at least picking one of those would appeal to the vast majority of playstyles. But I do believe all three of the weapons that you get, all three of the primary weapons you get in this game are from Hindu myth and legend. Uh, the spear you get, I believe yeah. it's called the, the Trishnul. And I believe that's actually Durga's spear. Yeah. It's, it's Durga's trident. Yeah. So that's also really cool to, to tie the character even further into the, the deities and, the, the legend of the Hindu religion. I think that's really cool as well. It, it's not just a cool spear. It is the spear of an actual Hindu God, which I, th which I thought was a really nice touch. It does. And it plays into the story too. They are literally gifts from the gods who are helping Raji on her journey. And, and yeah, I mean like, and it's another kind of little wrinkle to it is that each of the gods, there, there are three kind of like blessings, um, almost like attunements that you can kind of swap between at any time. And they each have kind of little individual skill trees that will allow you for passive bonuses. So for example, you can get a kind of like a lightning, a chain lightning effect. Um, you can get a freezing effect. You can get a, a fire effect uh, passively on your attacks. And you can swap between these three kind of attunements at any time. And that's actually one of the things that I, I, I did kind of wish was handled a little bit differently, just a little, it seemed like the pacing was maybe a little off on that. I did like that the currency that you spend, the kind of like little 
I guess, orbs that you find to use on, on that skill tree. I did like that you are rewarded for going off the beaten path um, and finding those. That was pretty cool. Ultimately, I did kind of feel like each tree was kind of samey. It's nice to have that extra little bit of oomph. And I do kind of encourage, you know, players when you do play the game, I do encourage you to experiment with that and kind of toy around with that. And certain things may be better for for certain enemy types. But ultimately, I, I did kind of find myself wishing that they were more vastly different from each other, you know? I do completely understand. Admittedly, it really is nice to have even more variety. Uh, three weapons maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but even if the passive abilities do wind up feeling kind of same, it is really nice to be able to choose between an electric ice or fire version of the trident, an electric ice or fire version of the bow, and then of the sword and shield. So I... I, I do agree with you that the passive abilities for each of the different elemental abilities did feel pretty similar, but I think it wound up becoming a little bit of a victim of the game's length. And that's not to say right. the game, that's not to say the game is only like two hours long. It's I think on your first playthrough, it'll take you about six, seven hours. It's not a short game yeah. necessarily, but uh, I do wish there were a little bit more of it. I mean, it's very much presented as a budget version of a game like God of War or Devil May Cry or Prince of Persia, and it fits very perfectly into that mold. Again, I think it's always a good sign when you wind up finishing a game and it, you just wish there was more of it. And that's ultimately what I felt with Raji is if there was a little bit more of the game, they probably could have gotten a little bit more out of the elemental, uh, out of the elemental powers that uh, you can apply to the weapons. And I, you know what, maybe we will get some more Raji soon in the future. Who knows? I hope so, because, you know, not only does the game's story kind of, you know, no spoilers, but it does kind of end up leaving it open ambiguously a little bit. There, there may be some narrative leeway there to do a sequel. Um, and I just hope that, that that's kind of like my, my overall impression after beating the game. I was like, man, like I, I really enjoyed this and I was so impressed by it, especially for a first outing. I just, there are just so many things where I'm like, okay, like with the next one, I really hope they tighten this up or I hope they, you know, they just go this little bit further with it or whatever. For a first outing, it's super impressive. Um, another thing I do need to shout out is that I had a couple, I don't know if you had any technical issues. I did have a few little bugs uh, that did cause me. I actually had to kill out the game and restart it uh, multiple times. Um, there was a situation where going into a boss fight, as a matter of fact, the final boss fight, I like clipped underneath the floor. Oh, really? And I couldn't move or do anything. I actually had to like completely restart the app. So that happened. Uh, that was a thing, you know, it's something worth mentioning. There was also a little bit of finicky, you know, with some of the platforming sections, I definitely had some issues with like some of the detection, maybe, you know, like I, I felt like I should have grabbed a ledge that I didn't grab. There's, there's one platforming section in particular, kind of in the, I guess, final third of the game where you're having to kind of create your own platforms. Yeah. That kind of was a little finicky for me, but, um, but overall, again, I'm not trying to knock the game too much because I did ultimately really enjoy it. But there are a couple of things just to keep in mind when you're playing this game. Keep in mind that this is the first outing from Nodding Heads, and this is a lower budget kind of thing. But still, 
very impressive on its own. And like we said, there's also a little bit of puzzle solving involved in there. And when it comes to Raji, the puzzle solving element they added into the game are these mandala puzzles and these tree puzzles. And they both essentially work the same way. You have multiple layers of a, a picture or a puzzle that you need to kind of fit together and you just essentially rotate rings or rotate layers. Yeah, there's probably what, like five or so of each. That sounds about right, actually. So around yeah. 10, around a dozen of these. So, And just like the platforming, just like Vishnu's story time, just like the boss battles, just like the combat, this is just another aspect of the gameplay. And this is one of the things I really like most about Raji is the fact that it, the pacing for me, I really thought was well done specifically because it felt like I was always doing something new. I would go from a combat situation into a puzzle, into platforming, into story time. And I, I was never in a, I was never in a part of the game that felt like I was just doing the same thing for an hour at a time. Right. And right. even though, even though these light puzzle solving elements they're not going to stump anybody because <laughs> one's a tree get it <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to stump anybody they're just there to kind of break up the gameplay but something i really really like is specifically the mandala puzzles are used as part of the narrative they actually right. uh show pieces of raji's life prior to the beginning of the events of the game so those are used to kind of set up her relationship with her brother who's been kidnapped and used to kind of help explain her backstory and a few other things. So, you know, they do have a practical narrative element within the game, which is nice. They're not just there for the sake of being there. They do find an actual narrative use for them. And then the tree variant on those puzzles is really cool because it's a little bit of an Okami-esque style thing where... It helps restore the the landscape around it. And one of the cool little details with the tree puzzles is you can actually see the environment as you're twisting the different pieces of the tree around to try to, and once you play the game, this will make a little bit more sense, but uh, as you're twisting the different pieces of the tree around to complete the puzzle and get it all interlocked back correctly, you will see the environment around you beginning to fix itself. And if you're looking, you can actually see where you need to put each piece because as you're rotating it, the environment around you will start to fix itself. But if you see it get to a point and then it starts to kind of slowly fall back apart, you know, that's almost like you're unlocking a safe almost. That's where you know that you need to go with that piece. So that's a nice little subtle hint of, okay, that's where that piece needs to be. And I really did enjoy that. So. Even though they're not really a focal point of the game, there's certainly enough of them in there and they're handled with enough care that I really enjoy doing those. Yeah, it's nice to have those kind of little things that break up the the moment-to-moment gameplay because if it were just, you know, combat, 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 okay, here's a little bit of story or whatever, combat, 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 it would get old really, really quickly, right? Where this is just, you know, there there are, you know, several locked 
combat sequences, but it's broken up by puzzles. And even though they are simple puzzles, it is just kind of breaking up that flow and you get a little bit of quiet time and you get time to learn about the culture. And, and yeah, it's, I I liked the pacing, you know, quite a bit in that way. You're never doing the same thing for too long. The game never feels stale. And yeah, you've got the visuals to help you along. You've got a really interesting soundtrack, a traditional Indian soundtrack with some traditional Indian instruments, which, uh, which I really enjoyed hearing. You don't hear that a lot, um, especially not here in America. So it was, it was really nice to hear that. And, um, and yeah, I, I was really impressed overall. I was too, ultimately. And this is something that Seth and I talked about a little bit off mic is that I'm glad that we don't specifically give out numbered scores when we do indie showcases or when we do all in review discussions, because right. they can be a little misleading because the, this game does have a Metacritic score of 70. And honestly, yep. we kind of understand that we, we feel that's pretty fair. That being said, we still wholeheartedly recommend this game. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with a 7 out of 10. Like, I think that that's got kind of a, like, seven's almost a dirty word or something in this industry a lot of the time. And that's why, I mean, this is just a perfect example of why we don't assign number scores to our reviews or our indie showcases. And, and when we talk to you guys, we just, we respect video games as an art form too much to just reduce them to a number. Like like you just said, if you know, 7 out of 10, a 70 out of 100 is, you know, we feel totally fair for this game. It does have its issues or whatever, but there's nothing wrong with a seven out of 10. This, this game is still perfectly recommendable despite its little flaws. It is not the kind of thing that we would tell you to steer away from. You know, it's not the kind of thing where it's like, oh, like everything has to be a perfect 10 out of 10 God of War, Last of Us experience to recommend, you know, it's, that's not the case at all this game still has its own merits and that's what we're here to talk to you about. We're going to acknowledge the flaws it has, but we're going to tell you what makes it special too. Yeah. Like Seth said, I do hope that the platforming and the combat do wind up getting tightened up. If I really hope this game does well enough for nodding heads to be able to make a sequel because this game deserves a sequel. I would really like to play Raji to the end of the story because it really feels like that wasn't a true end. Uh, Right. But yeah, I hope if they do, I hope the, the combat gets tightened up. I hope the, the platforming gets tightened up because those those technical issues do prevent it from being a, you know, a pristine experience. However, this is definitely experience that is still absolutely worth having. If, you know, not just for the fact that you do get to learn and you do get to envelop yourself so much in the Hindi culture, which alone was, I just found fascinating the entire time looking at the architecture and the artwork and the cutscenes and the story time and the music and just everything. I felt like I was really educating myself and that alone was frankly worth playing the game for, but there's also still a very enjoyable game here from an action perspective. Again, not God of War, not Devil May Cry 5, but if you do like games like that, you will still very much enjoy Raji and Ancient Epic. And just here at the end, I've just got to commend Nodding Heads for everything they did to make this game a reality because it was not an right. easy road for them. This game was actually a failed Kickstarter, only got about a little more than half of what they were asking for on Kickstarter. So they did wind up having to go to other means. They were able to get some from the Unreal Developer Grant Program, I believe it's called. However, uh, there were actually apartments that were sold 
in order to get the money to finish this game. And again, it's a really good game. I hope people play it. Go give it a check on the Nintendo eShop, Raji and Ancient Epic. Uh, again, all the respect in the world to the people for for doing everything they needed to do to yes. to finish creating something that they loved. And I just, again, everything they did to make this game a reality, I just respect the heck out of it. I respect that so much. I, I really hope it paid off for them. I really hope that this game does as well as it deserves to. And that is exactly why we're uh, why we're shouting it out in the indie showcase so go check it out on the eShop. you know it's it's definitely worth a look it, you know like you said if for nothing else than to educate yourself on the culture it's absolutely fascinating but it's also a really good really special game underneath all of that um except for that snake man oh, i don't snake. like that snake oh that was such a great part <laughs> i love that that was so great oh that snake the bosses are really cool in the game, too. I really enjoyed the bosses. That snake, oh, man, that was such a cool part. But uh, have you played Raji and Ancient Epic? Do you plan on playing this Indian fable? Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter, and let's have a conversation. But it really felt like the people over at Nodding Heads had a clear vision of what they were going for, at least when they put this game together. That's not right. really always the case, especially when it comes to AAA developed games. And what made us start thinking about this was, in fact, Resident Evil 4, which we'll be doing our retrospective on a little bit later on in the show, because that game, and we'll talk about that later, was basically unrecognizable from its first conceptual form. In fact, a few very interesting things happened with that original conceptual form. However, there are definitely some other games that we definitely felt needed to be talked about, games that look absolutely nothing like their original concepts, and we thought we would count them down for you in this week's Top 5. Now, specifically what we're talking about this week in terms of games that have morphed the most throughout their development are games that, again, the final version that was sold to us as consumers and the version that was at some point throughout development considered to be something resembling the final version of the game are almost unrecognizable from each other. And I think you'll understand what we mean when we start getting into it. Yeah, so let's get into it. Um, for number five, hey, uh, hey, Eric. Why, yes, Seth. Obligatory banjo reference? <laughs> <laughs> Obligatory banjo reference. Uh, number five is Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah, it's, it's warranted here. It is warranted here. We do talk a lot about banjo. I'm sorry, Seth does talk a lot about Banjo-Kazooie, but it is absolutely deserving of a spot on this list yeah number five being banjo kazooie it's not just my uh my you know my fanboy nature shining through this time um so this one it's actually something that we covered in our very first retrospective ever way back when when we talked about banjo kazooie but this game you know is just the the quintessential example of what we were talking about where when this game was released as Banjo-Kazooie, it was completely unrecognizable from what it started as, which was Project Dream, a Super Nintendo role-playing game that was kind of being developed by Rare to be in contention with something like a Final Fantasy VII. And you can kind of see some connective tissue and you can see some things that kind of made it through, namely the color palette of the characters and stuff like this. But the... If you go and look at Project Dream and you can it's actually readily available. You can look at artwork and even oh, yeah. like screenshots of the game and development progress. The game was fairly far along and 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 had like character names and stuff. There's quite a bit to it 
and ended up getting completely reworked for the Nintendo 64 as a collectathon platformer starting starring an anthropomorphic bear and bird. So I mean, it's a pretty big shift from Dream Land of Giants. Yeah, the original aesthetic of the game really looked like something between Donkey Kong Country and Golden Sun, but right. Again, not only did it shift console generations, but it completely shifted genres. So, again, very much like Resident Evil 4 in that regard. We'll talk about that more again later. Definitely stay tuned. Wink, wink. But Project Dream and Banjo-Kazooie, it blows my mind that they didn't take that original Project Dream idea because it was rare. And rare was, again, absolutely in fuego here in the mid-90s when it came to their game design. Absolutely everything they touched turned to gold. But uh, it, it does surprise me that they didn't, somewhere keep that original concept and come back to it because even games like even their later titles like cameo elements of power even those really don't feel like what project dream would have been or would have turned into if they had stuck with it so you know if microsoft hadn't acquired rare maybe we could have seen maybe they would have eventually come back to that idea and we could have seen what a proper project dream game would have looked like but project dream and banjo kazooie are inexplicably somehow a part of the same video game development process. I mean, so weird. I mean, this is a game that was like a started from the Super Nintendo era where it was like uh, taking advantage of that really spectacular Donkey Kong uh, Country graphical engine and like kind of had this this pirate dinosaur RPG theme. It sounded really interesting. And yeah, when you look at the game it became, and obviously Banjo-Kazooie is one of my favorite games of all time. You don't need me to tell you that Banjo is great. But I mean, what a crazy, crazy metamorphosis. And for our number four, we are going to a game that was recently released on the Nintendo Switch. Finally, 2K brought over a bunch of their games last year in a huge game dump. They brought over a lot of the Bioshock titles. They brought over XCOM and they brought over Borderlands. Now, when Borderlands was first being worked on by Gearbox, uh, a lot of the mechanics were around there. But if you looked at the original concept art and the original renders for Borderlands, it basically just looked like it looked like a poor man's rage. Essentially, if you remember Rage from id Software, it was very brown, very gray, very visually drab. And what they decided kind of at the 11th hour, apparently after the game was already about 80% complete, they decided to essentially revamp the entire visual style of the game. Everything in the game, all the models and all the environments and everything in the game was completely reworked to be this cel-shaded, incredibly colorful, incredibly bombastic, you know, cartoonish art style that really helped make the franchise famous. Yeah, I mean, if you go back and look at that, you, you still can. If you go back and look at that original 2009 reveal trailer for Borderlands 1, I mean, you would be forgiven for thinking that it's like a Doom game or something. It, it, yeah. It, it's got a very kind of like brown, grim kind of tone to it. And... It's funny because once they started running up against the clock on the development of this game, they wound up having to, yeah, completely change the graphical style to the cell shaded style that ended up defining the series. And 
you know, the, the kind of like shooter looter thing was already in place. The design stuff was already in place. Like you said, they had already made a lot of those decisions, but it was the tone of the game and the style of the game that ended up setting Borderlands so far apart from everything else. And that ended up happening late into development and ended up completely morphing it from this kind of just like every other shooter aesthetic to one of the most unique shooters still today. The stylistic decisions that they wound up going for have helped influence an entire generation of games. Borderlands is arguably most notable for its incredibly distinctive visual style. And that's one of the reasons we had to put it on the list is because without these changes, without completely overhauling the game's visuals, you could make a pretty solid argument that the game wouldn't be anywhere near as renowned as it is. I mean, it's Borderlands is what put Gearbox you know, on the map for all intents and purposes. Gearbox has had some pretty big flops over the years. Uh, I, Aliens, Colonial Marines, and Duke Nukem Forever immediately spring to mind. However, because Borderlands is so good, specifically Borderlands 1 and 2 back on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, because they were so good, Gearbox has been able to survive even massive flops like Aliens, Colonial Marines, and like Duke Nukem Forever. Borderlands 3, eh, not so much. However, we did get the two best in the series on the Nintendo Switch recently. If you haven't checked them out, absolutely do. Again, incredibly fun, incredibly distinct first-person shooters with a ton of personality that just bleeds through every cell-shaded curve. Absolutely. And, and it's and it's crazy to think that at one time, late into development, it almost didn't happen. But for our number three, I'm going to take you back a little bit further, all the way back to Nintendo's presentation at Space World 2000. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... So this is the very same presentation where they unveiled the GameCube and had kind of a sizzle reel of some of the games that they would be bringing to the system. You know, games like Luigi's Mansion appeared during this, and we ended up getting a sort of teaser trailer for the next Legend of Zelda game in development. And it's really interesting. It showcased Link and Ganon in a clash, and it was very much in a kind of dark, kind of... Uh, Ocarina of Time 2.0 kind of aesthetic, and everybody freaked out. Yeah, uh, if you remember what Link looked like from Soul Calibur 2, just imagine that, uh, but basically everything. Yeah, basically, and, and it was like very much like this is the Legend of Zelda game that is coming to the GameCube, and everybody lost their minds. This was exactly what people wanted at that time, coming off of games like Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, this looked like it was the natural progression of those elements. So, you know, just from a visual perspective. And as development began, uh, series producer and director of the game in question, Eiji Aonuma, was really bored with it, to be completely honest. He was just like, you know, we've done this. Like, this is great and all, and we were able to make a really pretty-looking Zelda game, but we've been there, we've done that. So what wound up happening was they kind of went back to the drawing board with the game's visual aesthetic. And he was presented with a really unique drawing of this kind of cartoon version of Link that ended up spawning our number three, The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. And when the game was sort of re-shown the following year with a new trailer and we saw, you know, cell-shaded cartoon Legend of Zelda game, uh, the internet 
kind of exploded and the, you know, the, the websites, the IGNs of the world and the gaming magazines completely raked it through the coals. You know, I, I remember specifically everybody called it Zelda, yep. you know, <laughs> um, and, and people just were really, really harsh on Wind Waker. Of course the game came out and it proved itself to be excellent, but I mean, to look at that initial, and you can still go on YouTube and find it, that initial Space World 2000 demo that was shown, that clip in that trailer, and then looking at what Wind Waker eventually became, you know, they would go on to sort of revisit that style with Twilight Princess years later, but Wind Waker came out first, and it could not be more different from the game they showed us. It still ultimately wound up being a Zelda game with all of the tropes therein. However... Even still to this day, Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker is still kind of the most divisive entry in the Zelda franchise, specifically for its incredibly cel-shaded, cartoony visual style. And again, coming off of, you know, all-time classics like Ocarina of Time, like Majora's Mask, it was definitely a very bold move to decide, no, we're not going to give the people exactly what they want. We're going to do a massive shakeup to the Zelda franchise by turning it essentially into, you know, an almost Teletubbies version of itself, (laughs) at least as far as many people were concerned at the time. But uh, again, it still wound up being an incredible adventure title, but there were just a lot of people that couldn't get past that, that cartoony, very kid-friendly aesthetic. They wanted Link to be more mature and whether, you know, whatever side of the fence you fall on, it was certainly a massive change. Yeah, I mean, for some of our younger listeners especially, try to put yourself back in the year 2000 when this is being shown. And, you know, Zelda is kind of almost seen as like, in hindsight now, here in 2021, everybody thinks Wind Waker is a classic because it is. But back then, Zelda was like, oh man, this is like the the darker, sort of like more mature. Look at those graphics. This is like our Game of Thrones on the GameCube, you know? That sort of thing. It felt like a big, epic sort of sequel. And then to turn around just a year later and see the, the, up, the, the update on the new Zelda game, and now it looks like a cartoon. I mean, it was... It was whiplash, to say the very least. And whether you love it or hate it, Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker certainly stands to this day as one of the most distinctive entries in the franchise because of the changes that happened during its development. What a game. I love that game. Now coming into our number two, uh, it's an incredibly unique case, even for this list, because this is a game that technically completely changed after it had already been released. Now, I'm not talking about games that have been in early access. We actually considered quite a few of those for this list, games that were uh, initially released in some type of alpha or beta and continued to be developed on until it was quote-unquote officially released. This isn't that case. Our number two is Super Mario Bros. 2, specifically the U.S. version. Yes, Super Mario Brothers 2 in Japan, very, very different, was eventually released here as The Lost Levels. But um, yeah, would you say that this puts you in a, in a little bit of a doki-doki panic? <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, over the past decade or so, this story has become much more widely known. But for those who don't know what happened with Super Mario Brothers 2 in Japan, let us tell you. 
Super Mario Brothers 2 was coded and released about a year after the original Super Mario Brothers came out in Japan. And Super Mario Brothers 2 was very much a direct sequel to that game. It had the same graphics engine. It had the same Mario physics. They did add some new things, very notably a poison mushroom and wind and a couple other things. But it was very recognizably a direct sequel to the original Super Mario Brothers. And it was it came out and it was a huge hit in Japan. However, when it came to localization development, when it came to working on the American version of the game, the developers were very concerned that the game's increased difficulty would really put off an American audience. And guys, we're talking about an NES game, by the way, games that were already legendarily difficult to begin with. They thought this game's difficulty was going to be off-putting to an American audience. And, you know, if you play the Lost Levels, I kind of think they might be right. However, it's pretty hard. It is very hard, yeah. So what they decided to do, they decided not to release that version of Super Mario Bros. 2 in the U.S. Nintendo had another video game in Japan, another video game property called Doki Doki Panic, and it was a very different type of game. Still technically a platformer, but a vastly different experience. And they decided, because this game was a little bit more manageable, a little bit easier, a little bit more of an enjoyable experience, many would say, that they would slap the name Super Mario Bros. 2 on this game, replace the main playable characters with Mario characters, Mario, Luigi, the Princess, and Toad, and release that as Super Mario Bros. 2 here in America. And... Uh, In terms of changing during development, this is certainly a much more expedited process than the other entries on this list. But I mean, again, they started with one title and by the time it got released to us here in America, it was a vastly different game. And to this day, Super Mario Brothers 2 is very much the dark horse of the Mario Brother platformer family. And a lot of people who don't know the story do know that Mario Brothers 2 is kind of that quote-unquote weird Mario game from back in the day. And this is the reason why. It's the weird one where you can play as Peach and like throw turnips and it's the one that has Birdo in it. And for that reason, I actually kind of love it. Oh, yeah. uh, For what it is. It's it's actually still a really, really good game. It's very different from Mario. It's not the Mario that you're used to. It's definitely the weird older brother. But yeah, I mean... It winds up being such a different experience from the traditional Mario Brothers formula and, and you know, particularly from what would end up being the Lost Levels eventually when released here. Super Mario Brothers 2 was a much more traditional, much more difficult experience. And us American babies had to settle for Doki Doki Panic skins. <laughs> and it is super interesting because... Uh, well, first of all, they wound up re-releasing Super Mario, the American version of Super Mario Brothers 2 in Japan as Super Mario USA. So right. just like so just like we got quote unquote Super Mario the Lost Levels, the people in Japan got quote unquote Super Mario USA. And that's essentially their lost levels. That's their weird Mario game. But because this happened, this created a lot of things within the Mario canon that are still to this day part of the Mario canon. Peach's floating ability, that originated here. 
Toad Speed, that originated here. Luigi's Extra Jumping Height, that originated here. We're going to be playing Super Mario 3D World here in a few weeks. And just like in Mario 2, all of those abilities that Luigi, Peach, and Toad have, the way they play in those games, were directly influenced by Doki Doki Mario. Yeah, it's so funny when you consider that, you know, again, like you just said, it's a great point that 3D World is coming out in a matter of weeks at this point. And this game really was kind of the precursor to what these these games would end up becoming. All of those staples originated here because of this kind of making lemonade out of lemon situation. Yeah, and it's not just in 3D World. There are quite a few games where Luigi has a higher jump than Mario's. That's not the only time. I mean, in Smash Brothers, Peach has her floating ability. So we're seeing you know, kind of the the butterfly effect of this whole Doki Doki Mario situation. We're still seeing the effects of that to this day. But before we reveal our number one pick, the the game that changed dramatically during its development cycle, we do have several honorable mentions, games that almost made the list but didn't quite make it. The first one I want to shout out is Dinosaur Planet, a.k.a. Star Fox Adventures for the GameCube. Another Um, another rare rare game. game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Another rare game. And yeah, it's so funny because you can actually see, just like with Project Dream, you can go back and look at artwork and and in-game. I think there's actually like an hour of beta footage that's available online for the game in its nascent stage. And, you know, the character of Crystal was already in place. The character of Tricky was already in place. And it was going to be like a dinosaur planet exactly what it kind of implies and they wound up reworking it into a star fox game kind of this very zelda like star fox game that game's an absolute guilty pleasure of mine by the way so (laughs) shout out the next one that i want to shout out is doom 4 slash doom 2016 which is now available on the switch of course that game is so interesting if you look into that game's development history it morphed so exponentially where if you you can actually this is another situation where there's documented footage of what doom 4 was initially going to be and it was basically going to be a call of duty kind of game and we all know what they wound up doing with doom in 2016 and kind of took it back to its roots and made a very old school doom experience the difference is night and day yeah, uh, very much encourage you guys to look into that. But I'm going to shout out a couple honorable mentions myself. I do want to bring up really quickly a game called 12 Tales, another rare game, as a matter of fact. Uh, a lot of people may not know the game under that name. A lot of people may wind up knowing it under the name it was eventually given, and that is Conker's Bad Fur Day. Yes. So, you know, Rare was, you know, churning out five-star platformer after five-star platformer. And they wound up figuring out that they were all starting to blur together, despite how good they were consistently making them. Donkey Kong Country and Banjo-Kazooie, there was still this very uh, signature rare feel to all of them. And they were in the midst of producing another one with a new mascot of theirs, this adorable little blue shirted squirrel named Conker, who as a matter of fact had just appeared in Diddy Kong racing. However, about halfway through development, they realized they needed to do something drastic to really set this game apart from all the other games. And somewhere, somehow somebody said, Hey, 
let's make this guy a foul mouth pervert. <laughs> Basically, yeah. And they turned this aesthetically kid-friendly game into this foul-mouth mature masterpiece called Conker's Bad Fur Day. And to this day, it's still one of the most expensive Nintendo 64 games if you can find a physical copy. Another absolute classic from Rare, but it was initially going to be uh, 12 Tales, Conquer 64, another kid-friendly 3D platformer collectathon from Rare, and they decided, nah, we're not making this one kid-friendly. We're not doing it this time. And it went on to become this landmark mature game. So uh, if you've never played Conquer's Bad Fur Day and you are of age, again, mature game. <laughs> but it is definitely yeah. worth playing. Shout out to the Great Mighty Pooh. Yeah, the Great Mighty Pooh. <laughs> Another game I want to shout out real quick before we get to number one is Earthbound 64. Following the cult success of Mother 2, aka Earthbound, on the Super Nintendo, there were plans in place and they were even in development of Earthbound 64, a direct follow up. But without going too much into it, that didn't happen. However, Japan, not America, but eventually Japan did get the release of Mother 3, ironically, on the Game Boy Advance. So it started out as a Nintendo 64 game that we were going to be getting here in the West. However, it wound up turning into a GBA game that never left Japan, unfortunately. And there's a ton of fan translations out there if you guys want to check it out. Although still kind of holding out hope and that's honestly kind of become a running joke in the industry and around Nintendo talking about the mother three translation. But uh, again, another weird development cycle. Don't know why that happened. Don't know why it's never come to America, but going from a Nintendo 64 game to a GBA game, you know, typically when you see changes in development, it's you're going up in terms of consoles, in terms of console power, in terms of generations it's it's really weird to see a game go from a more powerful machine, a more powerful console, to a less powerful one. And then the last one is, again, Resident Evil 4. We will be talking about it here in just a few minutes, but we just wanted to mention it one more time. If we weren't about to do a massive retrospective on the game, this game would definitely have made the list proper. It's an absolutely fascinating development story, and we're about to get all into it. But never fear, we did not forget about it. Absolutely not, but let's get into our number one pick, and I think this is going to be really fascinating, especially for our younger listeners who may not know about this, because our number one, the top game that we have chosen to represent this idea, the game that changed the most during its development, is Fortnite. And for those that don't know what I'm talking about there, Fortnite was revealed almost 10 years ago. Man, has it been that long? It has been that long during the Game Awards, as a matter of fact. Epic Games revealed this game with a trailer that basically showed a kind of like... It was a cartoony. It retained that kind of cartoony style. But it was basically a tower defense game where you're fighting off hordes of like zombie alien monsters. And it's so funny to go back and watch that trailer now. This like nine-year-old plus trailer and seeing like the old logo for it and everything, because it's so dramatically different from what is now the biggest video game in the world. And 
they started this game kind of in a game jam post Gears of War 3 uh, happening over there at Epic. And they came up with this idea kind of going with the building mechanics of Minecraft. And, and you know, that was really taking off and becoming popular. And they wanted to kind of make a shooter with those mechanics. And that was where the tower defense kind of structure of the original version of Fortnite came into play. And what ended up happening was when player unknowns battlegrounds took off and kind of took the world by storm with the concept of battle Royale, which is now, you know, one of the most popular genres ever back in 2017, Epic said, you know, we could do that. We've had fans kind of banging down our doorstep, wondering about Fortnite and when is Fortnite going to come out? So to appease them, let's give the fans something and release a battle Royale mode for Fortnite. And the rest is history. Basically, the day after the Battle Royale mode of Fortnite was released, uh, they essentially just stopped all plans of finishing what wound up becoming called the Save the World mode, I believe, in Fortnite. Yes. And it's just so, so crazy because especially the the game is still being developed. We talked about early access games uh, a little earlier. And this game's not an early access, but with all the DLC and all the stuff they've added to the game since its launch, and there have been games that have been changed fairly considerably since launch, specifically fighting games, do get a ton of patches. And very often now, the final version of fighting games is significantly different from the version that winds up getting released. However, if you look at Fortnite the way it is now with everything that they've added and even then taken away... If you look at what Fortnite looks like now versus that original trailer, again, unrecognizable. Absolutely unrecognizable. And a quick shout out, as a matter of fact, talking about still developing for the game. Just this week, they confirmed that the Predator and then Sarah Connor and the T-800 from Terminator are coming or did come rather to the game. They've made these massive deals with Walking Dead and Marvel and all of these different intellectual properties, it's becoming almost a Smash Brothers Battle Royale game with all of the different iconic characters that are coming into this game. It's not just some weird, bizarre tower defense game that by all for all intents and purposes probably would have just got lost in the shuffle with the rest of the games that were yeah. shown off at E3 that year. This is, again one of, if not the biggest game in the world and has been for a couple of years now. And that was due in part to them deciding that somebody else was doing something really cool and them, frank, frankly, taking that idea. They took the building mechanic from Minecraft. They took the Battle Royale idea from PlayerUnknown's Battleground. But I got to hand it to them. The way they've marketed the game, the way they've continued to develop and add content to the game, and the fact that the game does it it's a solid game it plays solidly it's not like it's a bad game but yeah to be fair the game does owe a lot of its success to to outside sources but if we're being honest the game success a massive part of the game success has come from the huge changes they decided to make during development yeah i mean this is such a perfect example of like them kind of seizing that opportunity and it kind of just exploding outside of their control. I think within the first two weeks of them finally releasing that battle Royale mode, just again, to sort of appease the players and kind of saying, Hey, 
these guys have had success doing that. Let's try it. They had like 10 million players in that yep. first two weeks. And I mean, like you just said, they've, they've secured deals with Marvel and the walking dead and star Wars and predator now and Terminator, these massive intellectual properties. I mean, I don't think anybody could have predicted how gargantuan Fortnite would become. We have seen it become kind of a pioneer in like digital media concepts. People have performed concerts and debuted film trailers within Fortnite. We have seen it become a phenomenon, an absolute phenomenon. Like it or not, that's what it is. And that is just the ultimate change. You know, just to echo what you said, if they had released the game that they were selling us back in like 2009, 2010, it would have absolutely popped and fizzled. But them kind of like taking that risk and making it, you know, banking on change and changing the game so dramatically like this, it, it has just absolutely turned into a global phenomenon. So, I mean, there, there was really no other number one in my mind. But what games do you think changed the most throughout their development? Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, let us know. We shouted out a few of our responses from this past week. So hit us up. Maybe we'll shout out yours next week. But I know we've mentioned Resident Evil 4 a lot, especially during the top five. We mentioned it a few times. So now, yes, it is finally time to give you guys what you want. It is one of the greatest games ever made. It was a turning point in the history of not just a franchise, but essentially an entire genre. We are very happy to be bringing to you this week our all-in retrospective on Resident Evil 4. So Resident Evil 4, before we get into it, just really quickly, for those who are new to the show and have never joined us for an all-in retrospective discussion before, I just wanted to clarify what that kind of is. Um, a retrospective discussion is where we're just going to kind of talk about, you know, oftentimes with the games that we like to cover, we like to talk about their development history, which is often, you know, sometimes the story of the way these games get made is more interesting than the story in the games themselves. And uh, we're going to talk about the development history. We're going to talk about the legacy of the game. We're going to talk about our personal history with the game. And we're just going to sort of look at it through a retrospective lens versus giving a typical review. It is not like a typical review that we would normally do. This is a different thing. So I just wanted to clarify that for folks. But um, yeah, man, I'm excited to talk about this game. Uh, yeah, the development side of the game, the legacy of the game, it's all kind of fascinating. It really is. Uh, obviously we've covered games with interesting development cycles here on retrospectives before Chrono Trigger, Mega Man three, few others definitely go back and check those out. But resident evil four, especially is, is very, very unique in terms of both its pre-launch story and its post-launch story. And I'm excited to get into it. Definitely. Well, let's get into the facts. I always like to start off with the facts. So resident evil four, released on January 11th, 2005 in North America and on January 27th, 2005 in Japan for the Nintendo GameCube. And that's actually why we're covering it this week. We are, you know, right smack dab between those two dates. So we're, we wanted to make sure we, uh, we landed right there between the two. And uh, yeah, as you said, uh, the game has a very interesting development cycle. It was part of the 
pr- pretty much the headlining title of the illustrious Capcom Five, and ah, we'll certainly yes. talk more on that later. Uh, but yeah, a very interesting game and, and a very important game. And I think what's kind of the the place we should start is sort of where Resident Evil and the survival horror genre kind of was pre-production. Well, as a genre, we were going into the next generation of consoles. The uh, We didn't know it at the time, but we were going into the Xbox, uh, the PlayStation 2, and the GameCube generation. And coming off of the first PlayStation game, which was where most of the real pioneers of survival horror came from, you had Silent Hill, and of course you had the Resident Evil trilogy, Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3, which... There were evolutions, there were upgrades and changes made between Resident Evils 1, 2, and 3. However, they were all fixed angle, tank control, pre-rendered background, zombie shooting games. They were all fairly similar. Somebody who wasn't familiar with the games probably wouldn't be able to tell which game was which from individual screenshots. Right, right, exactly. And, you know... It's it's funny because these games were obviously iconic. You know, Resident Evil was a big deal kind of from the outset of it, but it was the kind of thing that very much needed a shakeup. Like, it, it definitely was starting to, at least in the eyes of series producer Shinji Mikami, it, it definitely needed something to sort of give it a kick in the pants. It needed a different take, um, particularly with the camera, which is going to be a, a big thing that we talk about. Um, after Resident Evil 3 came out, RE3 Nemesis, that came out in 1999, Mikami announced that a new game, a sequel, was in development for the PlayStation 2 originally. And while this is going on, development of Resident Evil 0 was in full swing, while Mikami himself is kind of working on the Resident Evil remake that came out for the GameCube. Both of those would release in 2002, and both of them would underperform in terms of sales. So rumblings kind of started to happen around Capcom that it may be time to actually like retire the franchise. So it's, it's funny that we're talking about this game because it's obviously an iconic game at this point, but the fate of the franchise kind of rested on RE4's shoulders. And Mikami again, obviously knew that it was time to really evolve the series. And of course, as you just mentioned, the sales figures, the the reception of Resident Evil Remake on the GameCube was, was very much proof of that. That formula was starting to get kind of stale despite the, the new sheen, the next-gen upgrade that the GameCube did offer the games. But right. that was actually kind of a polarizing thing when it came to the development team. There were a lot of people on the development team who were happy that they were going in a new and interesting direction. And it turned out there were a lot of people on the development team who were kind of sad that they felt like they were selling out. They felt like they were losing what made Resident Evil Resident Evil just, you know, just trying to to go after success, essentially. Right. So, uh. And that was kind of a theme throughout, but ultimately Shinji Mikami did want a fairly drastic new direction for Resident Evil 4. And the the problems came because they couldn't really find out what direction they wanted to go ultimately with it. This game actually went through like, what, four different iterations? Legitimately like three that or four. That we know of. Yeah. <laughs> 
separate, <laughs> like full on canceled versions of the game before we wound up getting Resident Evil 4 as we know it in 2005. Like you said, development started on this game back in 1999, right after Resident right. Evil Nemesis came out on the PlayStation 1. We, we've heard about development heck for, you know, games for, for a long, long time. And this was when games were really starting to get into those multi-year development cycles, obviously leading up to the Super Nintendo and the PlayStation, the Nintendo 64 games were still relatively short development cycles compared to the behemoth calendars that we're used to dealing with today, these four or five year development cycles. But uh, a six year development cycle was just development. Like it, it was development heck for eternity at that point. There are a lot of people, I think, just assumed at some point that Resident Evil 4 was never really going to see the light of day. But just to kind of get into it, the first major build of Resident Evil 4 was uh, helmed by Hideki Kamiya, who was notable for being the director of Resident Evil 2. And again, Shinji Mikami spoke with Hideki Kamiya. They had actually butted heads quite a bit on Resident Evil 2, and this would wind up being a trend throughout the development of this first build of the game. Because because notably, Kamiya, even though you know Resident Evil 2 is an iconic game and a fantastic survival horror game, Kamiya himself is not a fan of horror. So. No, he's self-proclaimed not really a fan of survival horror of the genre. Those weren't really the types of games he wanted to make, which is kind of weird because Resident Evil 2, granted while taking a lot of aspects and essentially just picking up where the first game left off, Resident Evil 2 was also a really good entry in the series. Yeah, I just find that so funny. And so, yeah, when he comes into RE4 and he's being told to shake it up, boy, does he try to shake it up. My Lord. One of the big things, we've talked about the camera uh, a little bit already, but that was one of the big things that they were trying to to move away from was the fixed camera angles with the pre-rendered backgrounds. So they decided to move towards something they called dynamic camera, and they still had this, uh, you still didn't have any actual control over the camera, but instead of having it be a fixed angle, you would still have a cam- the camera switch shots as you were running around. Right. But the camera would actually track the character. You would have panning shots and tilting shots. There was actual camera movement. And uh, that alone was a huge development for the series. And that aspect uh, was carried over into a few of the next couple builds. But most notably, instead of being a tank-controlled zombie shooter, they made it this bombastic action game with a brand new protagonist and a really strongly supernatural vibe. And uh, it, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy to the point where Shinji Mikami eventually came in and said, yeah, I really wanted to shake up the franchise, but this is way too much guys. This is just, yeah, you, you've <laughs> taken it a bit too far. We, <laughs> <laughs> apparently like it was going to revolve around like somebody named Tony yeah. um, who was a guy who was like made like invincible. And like you said, supernaturally powerful with the help of like biotechnology, I guess. And 
now with the benefit of hindsight, we know that that's the kind of game that Kamiya likes to make, but it, it was not Resident Evil and Mikami opposed it. And, uh, and so, yeah, um, it did end up having to be reworked into a new project, notably ended up becoming Devil May Cry. Yeah, and for those who don't know that Devil May Cry actually started out as essentially an alpha version of Resident Evil 4, I find that immensely interesting to know that those two things were at one point actually the same thing. Yes. And obviously Devil May Cry has gone on to have modest success for Capcom, so good for yeah, them teeny tiny little franchise yeah but yeah and but it but but it was great because they put so much work into the project obviously and instead of just saying hey guys we need you to just cut sling load just cut your losses just drop everything about this project to shinji mikami's credit he said listen this isn't resident evil but i think you guys have something here i think you guys you know we'll take the resident evil name off of this but you guys keep doing this i think you've got something here uh, and, right. and again, to Shinji Mikami's credit, uh, he realized that they did have something there. And Devil May Cry, of course, went on to kind of define Capcom, really, for that entire console generation. Well, and, and what's super interesting is like the, the development of RE4 was super tumultuous and stuff like this. And there was a lot of things where we're going to get into all these different versions and all the just the crazy development cycle. However... Like it, it does go to show you how impressive it was and how much talent was working on this game when not only did the Devil May Cry series come out of this whole process, but there are story elements. I'll touch on this a little bit later, but there are story elements from a later version of the game that ended up getting revisited and reworked into Resident Evil 5 even. So we're planting seeds in this one game's development for not only a spin-off series that would become an iconic series for Capcom, but something they would touch on years later in a future game. So I think that just goes to show how much raw talent and how many good ideas were going into this crazy development of this fascinating game. And that's, I think that's a good teaching point, at least for a lot of potential creators, not just video game developers, but creators is, you know, you can throw everything at a board and see what'll stick, but you know, keep things in your back pocket because something, while it might be a terrible idea in one context, could wind up feeling at least like it'll work in a different context. And that's what they did with a lot of what happened with Resident Evil 4. And to even strengthen that point, going into other versions of Resident Evil 4 before the one we got, we did get uh, another couple of iterations before... Shinji Mikami came in and said, okay, guys, listen, I'm taking control of this entire project. And the other versions, notably the fog slash mist version of the game and the Hookman version of the game also helped inspire a lot of ideas that Capcom would at least allegedly go use in other places. But this, these versions of the game, this was actually shown to the public. The, the Hookman version of the game specifically showed Leon Kennedy within a mansion being chased by this. You know, if you've ever seen I Know What You Did Last Summer, it's kind of the <laughs> right. ghost version of that guy. The guy wielding this massive like meat hook or something. And right. uh, that was shown off, I believe, in 2002. 
Yeah, it, it 2002. And what's really interesting about this is because this is when the game's kind of development was, you know, now that that whole snafu happened, Devil May Cry spinoff, you know, whatever that's done, you know, that's great for for what ended up happening as a result of it all. But Capcom was a little bit frustrated with the way that development was going. So to kind of get to the place that we're at now in the timeline, they actually had Mikami seek out a third-party partnership with one of the platform holders. And what was actually funny was Microsoft caught wind of this and set up a meeting with Mikami on Christmas Day 2000. This was almost a year before the Xbox would be hitting the market. And Mikami expressed doubts on how the Japanese audience would receive the Xbox. And so he asked Microsoft about their vision. He said, you know, Sony sees their games as entertainment, something larger, quote, fueled by the emotion engine, end quote. I have no idea what they mean by that. (laughs) He said that Nintendo sees their games as toys created by the legendary Shigeru Miyamoto, perhaps the greatest game developer of all time. And then he asked Microsoft, so like, so what are you bringing to the table? They couldn't give him an answer. So allegedly, Mikami then stood up, bowed, and left the meeting. And the deal with Nintendo was shi- was was signed shortly after to develop five games exclusively for the Nintendo GameCube, one of which would be Resident Evil 4. And I think before we get into the other versions, we should just stop and talk about the Capcom 5 for a second. Yeah, I think that's a good idea because uh, very famously... A lot of third-party developer support was waning during the GameCube era, and this is something that we've touched on a few times on the show. So as you know, it, as a show of faith, as a show of support for Nintendo, Capcom inked a deal with the Big N to release five games exclusively on Nintendo's Little Purple Lunchbox. And those five games were Resident Evil 4, Beautiful Joe, Killer7, PN03 or product number 03 and a game that actually wound up getting canceled called Dead Phoenix, ironically enough. So these five games were all announced as GameCube exclusive games being published by Capcom. They were announced in late 2002 and this is when that missed uh, version, this is when that second primary version of Resident Evil 4 started getting a little... uh, started getting a little traction with the public, started actually getting shown off to the public. As a matter of fact, Capcom even very famously said that Resident Evil 4 might make you pee your pants. (laughs) Yeah. There was so many like weird superlatives being thrown around. I remember Mikami said that like they were, he was being asked about like if it would ever come to other platforms. And he actually said, he's like, no, this will only Resident Evil 4 is only going to be on the GameCube. And if it ever, I would cut off my head, I think is what he said. If it comes anywhere else. And I think they actually announced a PS2 version like before the game even properly released. Yeah. And which it's is funny. And it's very, very notable talking about the Capcom 5 because, again, this entire deal was inked as a show of support to the GameCube, which was losing a lot of third party support. If you actually look right. at all the games within a couple years, the only game that actually got released from these five that remained a GameCube exclusive was PNO3. It's not good. Yeah, honestly, how many of you out there even remembered that game exists before I brought it back up again? So, right. So all... And Dead Phoenix, as we've already mentioned, never even got released. So 
of those five, one didn't get released. One almost immediately fell into obscurity and the other three all went on to relatively soon have ports to the PlayStation 2. So I, I think that's actually kind of a good microcosm of what was happening with the GameCube in general at the time and third-party support with Nintendo. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's just funny like to, to think about that in retrospect because it seemed like it should have been this big thing for the GameCube that was really going to inject like new life into it. But of course... You know, the the writing was already sort of on the wall at that point. And while it was a nice idea, yeah, as you said, none of these kind of stayed exclusive. Um, you know, Killer 7, you know, is what it is. I, You know, Beautiful Joe, cult classic. But RE4 was really the one that came out and really, like, changed the game. Um, there was one more version we've talked about the sort of Kamiya version. We've talked about the, the Fog slash Mist version. We've got the Hookman version. Um, which is kind of when we started to see the um, the over the shoulder element of the game, yeah. Which is probably the most significant thing that this game did bring to the table, and we saw it kind of for the first time in this version. Yeah, a lot of what we see in this version of the game did wind up getting translated into the final iteration of Resident Evil Four. However, there was still too much of a supernatural feel for Mikami, and he still felt that this really wasn't Resident Evil. Again, he was wanting to shake it up, but they still felt like they were losing too much of the Resident Evil identity. Granted, yes, they still had Leon Kennedy, a version of Leon Kennedy as the main character, who was very famous from the original trilogy on the PlayStation, but because of what else they were doing, specifically you talking about the, the camera and what they were, how they were modifying the tank controls because they had moved away from that kind of dynamic camera that they wound up using in Devil May Cry and they went to a straight up over the shoulder camera, which wound up being one of the most famous innovations in the series. And I do want to bring up, we've already talked about the fact that uh, Devil May Cry came from Resident Evil 4. We've already talked about the fact that they were going to pin ideas for later use in the Resident Evil franchise. But from this version of the game specifically, there were also a lot of ideas that were allegedly used in Capcom's 2005 game Haunting Ground. Right. So even though Capcom felt that this was a little bit too supernatural for actual Resident Evil, they wound up allegedly using a lot of the ideas uh, from this version of the game in yet another new property. There were allegedly a lot of assets, like straight up assets used from this build of Resident Evil in Haunting Ground. Uh, allegedly, the script for Haunting Ground was initially a modified version of the script from this version of Resident Evil 4. Granted, they took Leon out of it, but they essentially expanded on a subplot involving a girl and her dog from this version right. of the game and expanded that into a full game. And a lot of that is led credence by the fact that there is a very notable uh, character inclusion in Resident Evil 4. There is a dog that is... Uh, kind of spotlighted in the early part of the game and is a very unique looking white wolf-like dog. And even though Capcom has never apparently officially never revealed it, the dog actually 
shares a striking resemblance to Huey, who actually appears in Haunting Ground. Again, it's a little circumstantial, but I kind of personally take that as confirmation from Capcom that they did wind up using a lot of those old RE ideas in Haunting Ground, and this was kind of a way to pay homage to that connective tissue. However, right. again, oddly enough, this was never officially confirmed per my research. Yeah, we actually, we shouted that dog out uh, last week on the show. He's, he's a good boy. He's a good boy, yes. Certainly, uh, certainly a, a little bit of a nod there. Again, I just like you, I wasn't able to find any sort of evidence that, that it was a connective tissue, but I agree. I think it's got to be some kind of nod at least. But um, yeah, so that plot also... Uh, ended up kind of getting worked into the Lost in Nightmares DLC for Resident Evil 5, which would come much, much later. And I just, I find that so interesting. Like the the fact that this game's development spun off into, you know, Devil May Cry, Haunting Ground, RE5 DLC. Like this, this game ended up setting the groundwork for not only games to come, but like, you know, all this stuff, even within Capcom. And I just find that fascinating. That, that's That's got to be the most interesting thing about this game's development to me. <laughs> yeah, obviously a lot of people have talked about how incredibly influential the game is. But even before the game was officially released, it was already literally influencing generations of content for Capcom. So yeah, it is, it is really, really interesting to see all the stuff that essentially branched off and was created simply from trying to create just this one game. But after multiple years and after several builds that wound up just not really feeling like Resident Evil, Shinji Mikami finally came in and said, okay, I didn't want to do this, but I'm going to take the reins. I'm going to be the actual director of Resident Evil 4. And come heck or high water, we're actually going to discover what this game is supposed to be. And they still wanted a slightly more action-oriented game. They still wanted to evolve the story and the gameplay from Resident Evil. So what that wound up looking like was uh, from a gameplay perspective, they loved the idea, the tank controls and the behind the shoulder camera. So they kept that. They were like, no, we're going to keep that from this build. We're just going to cut and paste that into our new game. And we're going to rework a lot of these supernatural elements. Another big gameplay innovation that Resident Evil 4, the final version of Resident Evil 4, wound up making was something that is now kind of bemoaned in video games in the form of what are called QTEs or quick time events. It's really interesting that now that's sort of become like a dirty word, <laughs> but yeah. back then it really lended to the action feel. I mean, it was an interactive cutscene. I mean, how cool is that? And the QTEs really came about from the fact that this was still supposed to be a survival horror game. And a couple of the developers realized that during cutscenes, players, that was a reason for players to feel safe. They knew that for at least a couple minutes, they weren't going to have to do anything. It was actually a time for them to take a breath. And the, the entire idea, the entire onus behind the QuickTime event was to keep players on their toes, was to keep players feeling like they were never safe. Like at any point, even during a cutscene, something could come out and grab them and kill them. And especially within the context of Resident Evil, it, it was a great idea. You know, on paper, on practice, it was just a fantastic idea. And it worked wonders in Resident Evil 4. Obviously, 
God of War would be another game that would help pioneer this and really help bring it into the mainstream and really help pioneer the concept. But uh, I, I think just in terms of con- being contextually appropriate, it really worked well uh, within Resident Evil 4, in my opinion. Well, and I think that this is something that this game in general, uh, it was kind of the mission of this game to be more action-oriented, to be more kind of immediate and fast-paced or whatever, but still maintaining the survival horror deliberate pace of Resident Evil's past. And that's the delicate kind of dance that this game plays with the entire time, where... Even something like a quick time event, which kind of reads in our minds as something that is high octane action within a cutscene, and that's what it is in this game too. But it just goes to show that the design decision behind this was rooted in survival horror. It was rooted in, oh, we never want the player to feel safe. So it does both of those things at once. And that's something that this game is constantly doing. Um, and, and I, and I love that about it. Another really interesting thing that this game did, because, you know, obviously the entire story was scrapped from what they were working on with these previous versions that we were talking about. And Mikami took it in a different place to go along with the, the, the kind of different take on the gameplay and the story. Um, we got rather than typical zombies, we got the Ganado or the Los Plagas enemies and, they were a totally different flavor and behaved completely differently from what we were used to. Yeah. Despite the fact that Leon Kennedy was the main character, there was no raccoon city. There was no zombie outbreak. There was no umbrella corporation. And they only mentioned Albert Wesker a couple times in passing throughout the course of the entire game. Even when it came out, it felt like there was really only a threadbare connection to the previous trilogy on the original PlayStation. And despite the fact that Resident Evil 4 still did maintain that B-movie feel, you know, terrible dialogue and all, which, you know, whatever you feel about the dialogue, I, I understand. If it's too cringy for you, I understand. I feel like there's a subtle charm involved. Oh, and it's 100% intentional. Yeah, it's incredibly self-aware. You know, it's not as hammy as the whole Jill Sandwich thing. Right. Most of the time, there is some pretty hammy dialogue, especially from a certain diminutive villain within the first half of the game. But Right. But I would still carry that B-movie feel of Resident Evil. So... It, it felt enough, I think. The Ganados, the Los Plagas, they still acted... I don't want to say exactly like zombies, but they were trying to evolve the series. And I think that was a good evolution of the typical zombie character because the normal zombies in Resident Evil were just those classic zombies. They were slow moving, shambling. You knew exactly what they were going to do. But the Ganados in Resident Evil 4 showed some intelligence. They would actually duck out of the way of your shots. They could carry and throw weapons. They were very much an evolution of that classic zombie archetypal villain. They were essentially zombie 2.0 for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Well, it's super interesting what it does from a gameplay perspective, right? Because the, the way that they behave and, and, you know, it is, you know, kind of like they're not zombies, but like kinda, you know, or whatever, but, but the way they behave is so different. And the, the way that it's structured is so different. And I, and I actually, I told you this 
I've replayed the game several times over the years, but I've replayed that first hour of the game probably 20 times. And it's because that first hour is so brilliant with the way they integrate that. You come into a big open area, which is very atypical from from what Resident Evil had done before. This entire opening sequence is basically telling you, hey, no, this is a different Resident Evil game. This is not what you're used to. And the way that they kind of throw all of those enemies at you right from the start and force the player to like adapt or die, basically, you can't just go around, you know, popping these guys in the head or whatever. That's obviously going to be the most efficient way to do damage. But you also want to like, it may be better to just pop them in the leg, knock them to the ground and finish them off with your knife to conserve ammo. Like it's a very deliberate survival horror game and they teach you that right from the outset and i i find that so fascinating they actually use the new enemy types to teach the player lessons right from the outset and then like after you deal with all of that it's like okay hi um hear that chainsaw here's one of the most difficult enemy types you're going to have to deal with throughout the course of this game. And we're going to throw it to you right in the very beginning. And it it was such an iconic part of the game. I've mentioned on the show before about how, you you know, games that are able to make a strong first impression typically go on to be regarded very well. Uh, Games like, you know, Sonic and Mario and games that have really strong opening areas, games that have strong opening levels. And Resident Evil 4 is a very good example of that. And Capcom knew what they had. As a matter of fact, that entire village section of the game that Seth is talking about, that entire section of the game was the demo disc they released for Resident Evil 4 back in 2004, a year before the game came out. And, you know, for our younger listeners... A demo disc is, <laughs> uh, before downloadable content was the norm, uh, on disc-based consoles like the Xbox and like the PlayStation 2 and like the GameCube, there were all of these different demo discs that were released with other games and in magazines and as special promotional items. They were absolutely everywhere. In the mid two thousands, and they were the coveted. Yeah, they were the coveted treasure of the magazine rack. <laughs> they really, really were. There's actually some demo discs out there that are very, very valuable now. There's an old demo disc from Pizza Hut that had Metal Gear Solid and Crash Bandicoot warped. Yes, and yeah, uh, that I would actually like to get my hands on if if I'm ever able to. But yeah, but demo discs were a very interesting part of that generation of gaming. And Resident Evil Four got one, and it was essentially that village section that was the demo they released for the game that got everybody super hyped for the final eventual release of resident evil for six years after it initially started development it's a crazy opening and i just i love that opening so much and it teaches you everything you kind of need to know right from the outset and and it does that really brilliantly and the game in general like the the game this is one of the most brilliantly and beautifully paced games i think i've ever played because even though you are doing the kind of typical third person shooting thing, which by the way, I've mentioned this before. I think RE4 should be held in the same rarefied air as like Mario 64 as one of the most influential video games ever made because of the way it influenced third person shooting. We'll talk about that in a little bit, 
but it, it does mix up the gameplay really, really often. You are not doing the same thing for too long. You know, there are vehicle sections. There's, uh, you know, even locales, there's like a mine section. There's a, you know, European castle, you know, there's, uh, kind of on rails, like kind of weapons sections. Um, it's, it's really interesting how they kind of always kept the player guessing. And I think that's what makes this game so consistently just, again, the, the notion of keeping the player on their toes. It makes it just consistently fun and, and it's never boring. <laughs> well, you do wind up going to a mansion at some point in the game. So that also opened the gate for and opened the, the opportunity to, in, uh, to inject a couple of those classic Resident Evil style puzzles into the game as well. So there is that right. little bit of connective tissue in addition to Leon Kennedy being there. In addition to, as a matter of fact, if we haven't mentioned yet, Ada Wong from Resident Evil 2 is right. also in the game if you've never played it. So they, they do try to inject a little bit of that Resident Evil DNA into the body of Resident Evil 4. And granted, yes, the vast majority of the gameplay is going to be that over-the-shoulder shooting. But yeah, they, it is paced very well. It is uh, They do change up the gameplay quite a bit. I, I will say, when it comes to gameplay... There is one thing that a lot of gamers do dread to hear, two little words that send gamers into an absolute frenzy most of the time, escort mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there is, there's something to be said about that. Not the entire game is an escort mission. And one of the things that I do like is that RE4 at least gives you some options when it comes to that, where you can kind of like have her hide in a you know a trash can or whatever and and she can sort of be safe like you can put her in like kind of safe areas and and not have to worry about her so much i do think that it's everything in the game is sort of handled with purpose i think in a really smart way so it's it's not as bad as it is in other games folks no it's certainly not as bad as it is in other games especially in the mid-2000s escort missions were absolutely the bane of gamers existence there were a lot of times where gamers would honestly just stop playing games when they came to an escort mission in a game. And it did uh, it did honestly feel weird that they decided to put so many of those sections into RE4. But yes, I do agree with you. Ultimately, they are handled fairly well as far as escort missions are concerned. You probably, especially on a first playthrough, are going to lose Ashley Graham, the president's daughter, the, you know, the escort you are escorting. That's the entire reason for everything going on in the game is Leon Kennedy is in Spain looking for Ashley Graham, the president's daughter, and you wind up finding her and you have to escort her to safety. There are quite a few sequences in the game where you will be trying to fight off multiple enemies while trying to keep her from being carried off. So, uh, but it is, it is a lot more manageable despite the tank controls, despite the fact that, you know, if you do make a wrong move with Ashley, you can act. You can actually hurt her. You can shoot her. But despite all that, they do wind up balancing all the elements fairly well. And <laughs> she is kind of whiny and annoying. But that's also handled in a very B-movie style-esque sequence that honestly totally. kind of lends itself well to the rest of the feel of the game. Yeah, and, and what's, you know, what's really interesting, too, is the... 
just the the way that the game like has all these these various elements that play together well you know we talk about escort missions talk about the pacing of the game and, and the different ways that it's it's shaken up with you know boss battles and stuff i'll talk about that a little bit later too but you know i gotta talk about some of the some of the kind of like you know you you mentioned tank controls i think even that like going back to the game, especially in the modern day, I think a lot of people might be turned off by the notion of tank controls. And and for those that don't know, tank controls basically means that, you know, in a typical action game released in 2021, you're going to have full, you know, free range movement and free range camera control. This game, all of the movement, all of the camera is basically done just by the left stick. You're When you move up, you move up. When you move left and right, you move left and right. There's no like strafing. And indeed, when Leon goes to take a shot, he stands still and he aims and he fires. And so that I think is a sticking point with a lot of people. But even that for me just just does nothing but enhance the tension of the game. Well, that was done very intentionally to do specifically that because if you're able to shoot a gun while you're moving, especially against enemies that, you know, aren't very fast, especially within the first two thirds of the game, then there's not going to be a lot of tension there. If you can zip in and out of enemies while you're shooting guns at them against enemies who are slow and mostly carry just knives and sickles, Despite how many of them come around, your mobility and your firepower, that's not going to make for a very tense experience. However, if you are in a mob of enemies and are forced to stop anytime you want to take any offensive uh, motion, then yeah, that is going to increase the tension a lot because you're essentially choosing you're essentially deciding between movement and attacking. So, right. Even when it came out, a lot of 3d games did have a very Mario 64 style esque control scheme in terms of movement with the left stick. However, resident evil four was able to, was, uh, was effectively able to increase the tension in the game by forcing, uh, players to choose essentially, do you want to move or do you want to attack? You can't do both. Right. And and I love that. And and another, you know, you touch on something there that I think also permeates throughout the game. And another reason why I think this game's pacing is so brilliant is the player is always having to make decisions. And it is, this game is like the thinking person's survival horror game. Um, that extends to even the inventory, which kind of has this grid system in, in this kind of like suitcase grid system you can of course upgrade it but you you will have to basically play tetris and properly arrange the way that your weapons ammo healing items what have you are arranged in your inventory i mean even something like your inventory is something that you constantly have to consider and and again you know the the game is always giving you things to think about and i love that yeah you essentially have a grid sheet uh, for your inventory, you have this attache case that you carry all of your different items in. You don't have a separate item slot for healing items. You don't have a separate item slot for ammo. You don't have a separate item slot for weapons. Everything that you carry has to be able to fit within this attache case. And what they did with that, honestly, is one of the most standout item 
management screens probably that I've personally ever played. It is at the very least memorable. Totally. Totally. And, you know, speaking of items and stuff, we, we've we got to <laughs> stop and talk about, we've got to talk about the merchant. We just have to. We've talked about them before on the show. We counted down the top five Nintendo merchants, but I mean, we, we got to do it. We got to <laughs> do it. What are you buying? <laughs> exactly. This sort of mysterious, supernatural, charismatic merchant that appears at several points in Resident Evil 4. I mean, you can't do an RE4 retrospective without talking about this guy. He's great. There's not really much to say, but he's fantastic. Even even going into the end of the game, you kind of in the back of your mind wonder whether or not you're going to have to fight him in some regard because he does <laughs> right. look like an enemy. But ultimately, he's just this weirdo merchant that shows up at the best possible times to help you in your quest to defeat Salazar and Sadler and all of the increasingly ridiculous enemies that you're going to wind up facing here in Spain. But uh, yeah, the fact that he's only ever been in this amazing game, the weird way in which he was handled, the fact that he wasn't just treated like, hey, I'm a normal NPC, here are my wares kind of thing. The fact that they actually gave him a little bit of a personality, although not enough to... It doesn't really feel like it's enough to overshadow the cor- the, the game, but he did wind up becoming such an iconic part of Resident Evil 4 that... You know, when you bring up the game, there's a lot of things that are very ubiquitous with RE4, but there are still so many people that immediately when they hear RE4 in the back of their mind, they just hear, what are you buying? You know? <laughs> right. Well, that that actually might be a good uh, a good opportunity there to transition into some of the boss fights, because that's actually something that kind of also differentiates from other Resident Evil games. Whereas, you know, there's always been boss fights in Resident Evil games, but you know, rather than having like, you're always on your toes. You always have like these, these kind of like ever present threats, but this game does have like full on set piece moments and set piece boss fights. And I think we should probably shout out some of those just right off the, right off the top. Like I, I'm afraid of like one thing basically (laughs) and one thing only. And that's like giant dangerous sea creatures that can eat me. So the Del Lago fight is like, that's the standout for me. That's the, like the definite, you know, when, when I look back at the bosses of RE4 in the middle of a lake, lobbing harpoons at this thing. Um, terrifying, man. Terrifying. Yeah, that, that's the real first set piece battle. When you have the, right. the village massacre, the village rampage, you do deal with uh, arguably a boss character in a lot of people's view. The chainsaw guy. The yeah, yeah, the chainsaw guy with the with the burlap sack over his head. A lot of people view that as an actual boss within the game. I, you know, it's more of a mini boss. You could even call it a uh, an, uh, a heavy essentially in terms of video game nomenclature. Yeah, it, it's sort of like I said, it's sort of just like a wall. Like, hey, you're going to have to deal with stuff like this, so deal with it. Yeah. And then of course you have the El Gigante enemy yes that the aforementioned dog actually helps you with uh well that the dog is available to help you with if you do something earlier on in the game and which is so great and i will say if you play the game in such a way that the dog does not help you with the fight i have to question your integrity as a human being we cannot be friends 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We cannot be. And hopefully you'll understand that if you ever play the game. But if you play the game in such a way that the dog does not help you with the El Gigante fight, then I I don't know what to tell you about yourself as a human being. I'm sorry. But yeah, the Del Lago was the first real set piece battle of the game. And going back to first bosses of games becoming very memorable and very iconic, uh, this this is another really, really big example of that because admittedly, you had Krauser later on in the game, who was also a fairly memorable boss fight, but admittedly, a lot of the more monstrous characters that you fight in the game do carry a lot of the same design sensibilities, just, you know, mangled in different ways, essentially. But the Del Lago was a very uniquely designed boss fight within Resident Evil 4, which is, I think, a reason that it stands out so much in the minds of players. Yeah, well, and it's funny, too, because, like, at a certain point it's just like all right you have all these all these different enemy types you you know the game does sort of you're gonna fight the the ganados by the way apparently that word just means the cattle so that kind of has like a creepy connotation and and makes sense you're gonna be fighting like a bunch of those and and they shake it up shout out to the dynamite ones which are awful and will insta kill you constantly (laughs) (laughs) Um, that being said you can't actually shoot the dynamite out of their hands yes and cause them to blow themselves up and their friends up uh and that that's actually a really cool aspect is you can shoot items straight out of the air you can straight you can shoot knives that are thrown at you and axes that are thrown at you uh the 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 gunshots in this game matter if you do a headshot you have a chance of straight up popping uh, one of the Ganado's heads, and especially as you get later on into the game, you may not actually want to do headshots because it might actually make the enemy stronger. If you shoot an right. enemy in the leg, it could actually knock them to their knees. So the how intricately they got with placed, deliberate gunshots was also really, really cool here in Resident Evil 4. It is kind of interesting, though, to your point that, like, you know, you you end up fighting as boss fights different versions of these ganados, kind of more unique and powerful versions. You mentioned the El Gigante. You end up fighting two at a particular point oh, where God. it's like, okay, great. Yeah. Um, you end up fighting this weird, like, mishmash, experimental, like, homunculus creature. Um, but then, yeah, you have some more interesting fights, like Krauser, you mentioned, who I guess... Leon's got like a vague history with. Yeah, especially in the second half of the game, a lot of the story elements and a lot of the motivations and a lot of the the elements, the plot elements are just kind of thrown in there. Admittedly, it really feels like a game of two halves in terms of not just the narrative, but the set pieces, because the first half of the game seems like it's one entirely separate experience. And the second half of the game because of the game's need to essentially escalate it. The, right. the way the game escalates does get kind of ridiculous by the end. If I did have a negative about the game, if I were to say any sort of negative, um, I'm not one of these people that thinks the game is perfect. Okay. I love the game. Don't get me wrong. And I think it's one of the most important games ever made. I think it goes on a bit too long. And I think that the, kind of like militant like compound section there at the end of the game where like enemies they kind of have like a weak like cover system and 
you know, enemies are, are actually, there's like gun wielding enemies. That's a little, to me, that's a little half baked personally, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the game's escalation, because uh, toward the end of the game, the game becomes so action oriented that it's, it's practically lost all semblance of survival horror at that point for all intents and purposes. And I, th- I think that's actually a really good way to transition into the game's ultimate reception and legacy, because when the game came out, a lot, all the new ideas and all the execution and the graphics, the graphics, especially for a 2005 oh, yeah. GameCube, ex- uh, GameCube exclusive game were really, really impressive. Granted, yes, there were mostly grays and browns involved, but the character models and the locales were very, very well produced and very well coded. But between everything, the game was just an absolute smash success when it came out. It took them a long time to figure out what Resident Evil 4 looked like. But when Resident Evil 4 came out, it was essentially just universally praised. And it wound up winning Lord knows how many Game of the Year awards. It was just nines and tens out of tens all over the place. It was this genre-defining uh, instantly genre defining classic right out the gate. It should not be overstated how this this game quite literally changed the game for third person shooters. That over the shoulder perspective was so unique and so brilliant. I mean, we would not have games like Gears of War or Uncharted or whatever to, to point to the other guys um, if it weren't for RE4 doing it first. You know, even though they're not kind of the more fast-paced action that those games are that over-the-shoulder perspective and and that sort of like take on third-person shooting that that game pioneered is so important i mean if, if this game had not had not come out i i do wonder what the landscape of third-person shooters would look like today <laughs> well it's funny we talk about that because there are a lot of people that actually bemoan Resident Evil 4's influence specifically because of the the shift to more action-oriented gameplay. Because to be frank, uh, in recent years we have seen a massive recession of survival horror as a genre, really. And you can really point to Resident Evil 4 as a turning point for that. Because as cool as a lot of the gameplay elements that were added in Resident Evil 4 are, a lot of it was a movement toward a more action-oriented lifestyle. Yes, it was still technically a survival horror game. However, when you're doing German suplexes and when you're doing (laughs) massive roundhouse kicks that can knock down literally half a dozen enemies at once... And when you're doing QTEs that have Leon Kennedy, when you're doing quick time events that have Leon Kennedy doing almost superhero-esque maneuvers. <laughs> right. When you have a character that's capable of things like that, it's kind of hard to make that character really feel vulnerable in the sense of a survival horror backdrop. I'm going to compare Resident Evil 4 to Soul Calibur right now. Okay. The comparison between Resident Evil 4 and Soul Calibur for me is both games wound up becoming victims of their own success in the sense that 
Soul Calibur is the highest rated fighting game of all time. Soul Calibur that released on the Dreamcast in 1999 is the highest rated fighting game of all time. It was simple, yes, but it was perfectly balanced in terms of maybe not uh, character balance, but in terms of just simple pick up and play, but fun and well executed gameplay. There wasn't a lot of complications. There wasn't a lot of extra layers added to the gameplay. It was simple, but it was done to perfection. However, where do you go from there? Right. You're going to have to make another one. You're going to have to somehow escalate the series. You're going to have to somehow evolve the series. And while some of the Soul Calibur installments since the original, since, well, <clears throat> since that, or since, it's weird calling it the original because it wasn't the original because Soul Edge on the PlayStation was the original. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But a lot of the Soul Calibur installments since Soul Calibur 1, they've been good, but they've never really been able to recapture that. It's essentially been a quest for them to recapture the magic of the first Soul Calibur game. And Resident Evil, in many respects, is doing the exact same thing. Uh, the game was considered essentially near perfect when it was released. Just about everything the game did, even the cheesier elements of the game were praised just because of how well the full package came together. Like we said, nines and tens out of tens from just about every reviewer on the planet. It was this immediate instant classic. So where do you go from there? You still have to up the ante. You still have to evolve the game. And that's where Resident Evil really started to falter as a series. Because once this game came out and everybody said, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, Capcom said, oh, okay, well, this is what Resident Evil is now. This is how to make a good Resident Evil game. We have shifted more toward action and it has paid amazing dividends for us. We have to double down on this action now. And while you have influential games like Mario 64, like The Legend of Zelda, that have gone on to have very positive legacies in terms of the games they've influenced, a lot of people feel like Resident Evil 4, as amazing as the game is within a vacuum, they feel like it was kind of the beginning of the proverbial end for the Resident Evil series. Flash forward to RE5 and we're like punching boulders. Exactly. And then <laughs> you've got Resident Evil 6, which was very much the the action, you know, tipping point for the game. You mentioned the whole punching the boulder thing. People talk about jumping the shark from Happy Days. Punching the boulder is essentially the video game equivalent to that because, again, Capcom just because of the success of Devil May Cry and because of the success of Resident Evil 4 and the relative failure of games like Haunting Ground that were more akin to traditional survival horror types of experiences. Their action games were doing incredibly well. Their survival horror titles, when they tried them, were not doing as well. Uh, Konami was still having great success with Silent Hill, but Capcom very much seemed like they had found their formula going forward, much to the dismay of many classic RE fans who missed the zombies, who missed the, you know, 
the scarier parts of the games when characters felt like they could actually die when they didn't feel like they could literally punch boulders over cliffs. So the legacy of RE4 is something that's incredibly fascinating to me because again, as a game within a vacuum, it's absolutely fantastic. However, the trends that it began granted as many amazing games as it has influenced specifically for its own franchise. It felt like kind of the peak at which everything immediately just dropped off a cliff. That's absolutely fair. I think a lot of people feel that way. And that's why, of course, you know, when they came into RE7, they sort of had to take the series yet again in a new direction and, and kind of go back to the roots a little bit. So yeah, you're right. That is pretty fascinating, but we have covered the game's, crazy <laughs> development cycle we've talked about the legacy the influence both you know good and arguably bad but uh j- to sort of close out the retrospective what do we say we uh talk about our personal history with the game what what is sort of your personal history with uh re4 uh despite the fact that it was a gamecube exclusive for at least almost a year i didn't play it until it came on the playstation 2 as a matter of fact i don't think i mm. have personally played Resident Evil 4 on a Nintendo console. Now, uh, again, it's on the Nintendo GameCube. They ported it to the Wii. It's also available currently on the Nintendo Switch if you have never played it or don't currently have a machine that can play it. It's on the Nintendo Switch. Um, But I played it on the PlayStation 2, going back to how the Capcom 5 wound up at least, you know, the three games of note, essentially. Uh, of the four games that were actually released, all wound up coming over to Sony's console. And it was ultimately a good thing at the time that Capcom did that because it sold gangbusters on the PlayStation 2. Everybody had heard about this amazing GameCube exclusive for almost a year. And then when it finally came out on the PlayStation 2, that was essentially all the marketing that Sony needed. So I admittedly at the time wasn't a big survival horror guy. I wasn't super into horror games. But for the past year, I had just seen, oh my God, this is the most amazing game that's ever been released. You absolutely need to play this game. Resident Evil 4, Game of the Decade, Resident Evil 4, oh my God, Resident Evil 4, best in the franchise. Just this constant stream of positive press so that when it finally came to the PlayStation 2, I was like, I guess I've really got to play this game. And I did, and I... I, I agreed with everything everybody said. It was absolutely fantastic. I enjoyed every moment of it. Turns out, ironically, that the more impressively visual version was the GameCube version. I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, I just thought that that was an interesting note uh, because Sony, you know, Nintendo is very famously behind on the hardware and have been behind on the hardware since the GameCube era. So, Interesting to me that the the Nintendo version of a game that's been released on multiple consoles was actually the prettier version of the game. That's not something I think we would be able to say about many Switch versions of games that <laughs> right. you can also find on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. But they added a bunch of really interesting, fun little unlockables with the PS2 version. You can unlock some interesting costumes for Leon. You can unlock a suit of armor for Ashley that essentially negates the entire escort mission aspect of the game, which I thought was really fun. You could unlock this massive laser cannon that essentially mowed down screens full of enemies. 
So they, they added some fun stuff. They added an entire little mini campaign for Ada Wong. So uh, I, I loved it. I, I absolutely enjoyed it. And of course they've gone on to re-release Resident Evil four on just about everything. There's even talks of a straight up Resident Evil remake at this point. Oh yeah, it's it's like all but confirmed at this point. I think I've bought Resident Evil 4 about 12 times over the years, so. <laughs> you know, it's funny because like you, I was not some massive survival horror fan when I was growing up, you know, and and kind of in my teenage years. So, I had a friend though, uh Mikey, shout out Mikey and who who I am sure will never hear this. Um and I haven't talked to him in years, but childhood friend Mikey, who was a big Resident Evil fan, but didn't own a GameCube. I did. So he ended up bringing his copy of the game over. By the way, for those that don't know, Resident Evil 4 on GameCube is a two disc game. So I remember him bringing that over and we popped the case open and saw that it was two discs. And I was like, oh, this game must be awesome. It's on two discs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, but, but he brought it over basically just to play it at my house. And I just remember being absolutely floored by it. Like, I just remember like, what, like, this is so far removed from what I kind of expected. Like, you know, not being a Resident Evil fan, you know, playing the old ones and being familiar with them back on PlayStation. But this was so different and to my mind, so much better than the ones that I was kind of just okay on before, you know? And yeah, fell in love with it. Uh, it's a fantastic game, obviously. My favorite version is the Wii version, personally, because I like the motion controls. I think it works super well with motion controls, and it is an absolute inexplicable crime that the Switch version does not have gyro control. Like, what? What happened yeah. there? Yeah, that would be a nice thing but, uh, for them to patch in. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. But anyway, that that was always my sort of favorite way to play the game. But yeah, I just remember we we played through that game basically in like a marathon session at like a sleepover at my house, basically. And uh, that's a very fond memory for me. I, I just I just remember being absolutely floored by that game from the graphics like you said from the action set pieces i'd never seen anything like it that's a very fond memory like i said i've replayed the game you know several times over the years but that first experience is something that i'll never forget re4 is a special game and if they remake it they're going to have some very interesting challenges indeed yeah no punching boulders please <laughs> yeah but that was the story of the at one time nintendo gamecube exclusive mature rated game that wound up becoming one of the most iconic and one of the most influential video games in the history of the medium and shinji mikami still has his head attached yes yes <laughs> thankfully he decided not to be too literal with that well what about your story with Resident Evil 4. I imagine many of you have played this iconic third-person shooter. If you have, tell us your thoughts. Tell us if you know anything about the history, the development of the franchise that we forgot to mention. Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. And do please subscribe to All In, a Nintendo podcast on whatever podcasting streaming service you are listening to us on. Thank you so much for hanging out with us each and every week, guys, and making us part of your weekly rotation. But you know, man, talking so long about Resident Evil 4, it, to be honest, it actually has me wanting 
to go to Spain. I mean, yeah, I might have to deal with the Las Plagas and some mercenaries and some monsters, but, you know, it was just a really beautiful shade of brown and gray most of the time. You know what? I got my backpack. <laughs> I'm just going to go buy a ticket. I'll see you next week, man. Hi, right, guys. I have been. John Romero is going to make you his Eric. And I've been Spencer Mansion Seth. Okay, dude. Just, I guess, just be back by next week and try not to die. All right, guys. I'll see you next week for the show. Oh.